we're going to start with some breaking news. Maybe if you're on the social media scene, you've seen some things. I can confirm to you that Buckets and Dan, the show is over. Buckets gets engaged a month ago, and Dan now drops the hammer to the beautiful Cassie Wegren. I'm just so glad here. Uh, and, and if you could, you know, Cassie, I'm going to ask you this. First, I'm going to say congratulations, and then I'm going to ask you for, for the play-by-play of what happened in Grand Island, New York, Saturday night. Ah, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. First and foremost, uh, I thought I was just going to have a nice birthday bash with my friends. I thought we were just going to, you know, be hanging out at the pool. And then every other day, Dan just kept telling me another person is coming. Um, so then I started to get a little anxious. We went over, took a couple pictures, and then it started pouring rain. So everyone was hiding under umbrellas or inside. And then next thing you know, Dan's pulling me out into the rain, asking me to come see something. Um, and I was not happy, to say the least. Um, very confused to why he was pulling me out into the rain. And then he started showing me some videos that Corey Martin and Amanda Martin um, sh took of us when we, the day that we first started dating. Um, and then, you know, then I blacked out. And let's talk about the diamond because it's 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 huge. It's beautiful. You know, Dan did a really good job. And, you know, the same thing I felt, you know, after I got engaged, certainly drained the bank account a little bit and certainly pinching pennies to get through the rest of the summer. So if anyone wants to advertise, you can let us know. Dan's probably in the same boat. But I mean, our, how stunned were you to see that beautiful ring and that and, and the more surprising thing is that Dan was able to pick it out himself. <laughs> I was completely shocked wasn't expecting anything this beautiful this big um he did a fantastic job absolutely dan your thoughts i had a lot of help from her friends and the um probably ten thousand non-subtle hints that Cass has dropped over the past three to four months she made it very well known what she wanted so it was my job to just go out and do it and i figured no better time like the present so here we are and I'm very excited. I keep going. All right. Very excited. It, um, I Like I said, I knew I wanted to do this from the moment we started just talking, not even dating. You can ask anybody that's cut my hair or I worked with. I've been saying this for over a year now. So very excited that it's officially underway. So congratulations again both to you, Cassie and Dan. And the show is officially over. Yeah, Bill, I just feel bad for... All our single female listeners that now have no shot at Buckets and Dan. <laughs> Cass, would you like to comment? I, I have nothing to say. Thank you so much. We are back. Episode number 14, Buckets and Dan Sportsland. This train is still rolling. We are on to some basketball talk. A few different segments to get to. We had an excellent Mount Rushmore with our brand new fiance. Speaking of brand new fiance, Dan, my co-host here, got engaged Saturday night. 
Uh, I mean, what a weekend it was, Dan. Really happy for you both. Yeah, still buzzing, still very happy. It's funny to hear fiancé. Definitely makes me feel like a grown-up. But, Bill, for as, as big of a weekend as it was for me, I, I heard it was a pretty big weekend for you, too. You know, all I'll say is, you know, thank the Lord I got engaged a month ago because if I didn't yet and you did and then we talked about what I did this week, you know, the bit, the best thing that happened to me this week, I mean, outside of seeing you uh, drop on one knee was – I finally got the, the monkey off the shoulder. I won an NHL Stanley Cup on NHL 2020. Uh, it was an excellent, excellent season. I went to a couple of game sevens throughout the playoffs, uh, and it was excellent. I, and, and when I did this, when I drafted this team, I had a bunch of old Sabres like, that I wanted to see one day win a cup. So I drafted guys like my fourth line was Pominville, Vanek. I had oh. Ennis on the team. I had... I had like some new Sabres. I had Colin Miller. I had Brandon Montour. I had some guys like from other teams that I really like. I had Keith Yandel was on my top D pair. But my goalie was Vasilevsky from Tampa Bay, and he pretty much started every single game in the playoffs until I got up and I was rolling after the first period in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup at home against Winnipeg. And after the second period, I think I was up 5-2. I, I pulled the trigger, and I put in Ryan Miller, my backup, because I wanted to see him win the cup, and he stood on his absolute head and got me the NHL Stanley Cup. So uh, all is well and good in the world, and I only have one other, I only have one other uh, bucket list item to do for the rest of the summer, and that's break 90 on the golf course. Gave a couple goes at it this week. Was coached up by a couple friends, Corey Martin, Mike Licata, and uh, just couldn't get it done at Brighton. Shot a 93, a couple blow-up holes, but I'm trending in the right direction. Went 95 at Diamond Hawk yesterday. So, you know, I'm hoping by next next week, you know, we're talking about me going 89. Love the energy. I don't think you took a breath that whole time. Glad to hear you got the monkey off the shoulder. For a lot of people, it's stuck on their back. So I'm glad that's done. And, you know, I, I won the cup. No big deal. I won the cup a week before that, but I put in a lot more time, an embarrassingly long time. It was like after four off seasons, finally won it. But it is nice to look at each other and say we finally, finally, See, finally we it. finally did it. Both got an HL Cup and got engaged. So, Dan, how's the last 48 hours been? It's been a whirlwind. It's been a whirlwind. We're talking about the sports, right? Sports are back. No, we're talking about I being know, engaged. No. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's been good. It's been good. I, again, thank you to all. I'm sure none of them listen, but thank you to all of Cass's friends for their help, um, obviously the Wegrins for hosting. So it was a very nice weekend. But this is a sports show. It's not a love show, Bill. <laughs> so let's get to sports being back. It's been awesome. And I know, look at, I know this is kind of ignorant for us to say. We're kind of ignoring the COVID stuff. Is it is it good long term that we're rushing sports back? No, probably not. But being someone that loves sports, I. I understand the difficulties, especially that Major League Baseball is having, but basketball and hockey seem to have done it right in their bubbles. The NHL has been fantastic. The product has been super fast. There's been upsets all day. Chicago with the upset, Montreal with the upset, Arizona, Columbus, Minnesota. So it's great to see that there's a little parity coming in. Obviously, some rust needs to get knocked off, so we'll see moving forward, but could make for an interesting lottery once this round is over. It really could, and we're sitting here now watching the Rangers-Carolina game, and it just, it's, the speed is outstanding, so it's been a lot of fun, and I just hope that they can keep this up. I've really enjoyed watching the games. I thought I loved Edmonton going in. Of course, McDavid scores the early goal, and then, you know, they just fell off from there, so, you know, there's just so much unknown. Like, 
you know, you wouldn't think that Montreal would stand a chance against Pittsburgh, but there they were in game one. They got it done. So we'll see where this thing goes. Did you watch that game? Two penalty shots, one in overtime. No, I did not. Me either, but Connor Sheary had one of the worst penalty shot attempts I've ever seen. So that was good. The NBA games, it's really cool. The NBA is trying to incorporate the virtual fans, and it's really cool hearing how much trash talk. Watched a game the other day. They had to bleep out like every 30 seconds. There was just no sound coming because the guy, that poor guy's the, the trigger guy for these NBA games is on alert with how much trash talking. I heard C.G. McCollum uh, on Pardon My Take today saying the trash talk's at an all-time level because when you score a bucket, you just hear like, you know what I mean? There's no crowd, so you have to do that to get yourself hyped up. That Trailblazers-Raptors game a few weeks ago, the ref had to stop the game and be like, if you guys keep talking, I'm, I'm throwing people out. And it's not all bad trash it's you know like friendly trash talk these guys are hanging out with each other after games but obviously the competition is still there it made me think it's going to be very weird in both sports when the final buzzer goes if we get there hopefully for a championship it's gonna be very weird Mm -hmm. how quiet it's gonna be now it's similar to if, if i know we always talk about like the best sounds in sports like when the playoff road team Win or wins <laughs> like an overtime goal. How you hear their bench go nuts, screaming. but you can hear a pin drop there. That's what all these goals are like, and it's really cool. And you can hear them screaming when there's too many men on the ice or when there's a cheap hit that they think should be called a penalty. I think it's been great. Yeah, it's been great to see the NBA benches too, how they're kind of spaced out. But they, I've never seen they're so engaged. You know, like you know, a guy hits a mid-range shot and guys are getting out of their chair. You know, they're hyped up. And I think, you know, this is a great setting for that because like we talked about in a couple of our interviews today, or yeah, that you'll hear today, that there are far fewer distractions. So it's kind of these guys, NBA and at the NHL level, their lives have become much simplified, especially for them right now, being in the bubble that there's no family. um, It's really, it's just them, you know, their brothers that they're playing with and they're just trying to go out there and win and they, and hang out with each other, really. That's all they have. So it's been really, really neat so far. I hope everything works out. But, Dan, i got to ask you this. So Wait, bu- quickly, Buckets. Let's talk about um, our guests. We haven't done that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk about our guests since it is a basketball show. We went – our Buffalo Sports Blast from the past uh, this week is a former NBA player, um, a Buffalo native who still lives in Buffalo and is now the coach at Bryant Stratton College. Played four years at Syracuse, was drafted in the second round of the Philly 76ers, and that's Damone Brown. Yeah, he, he was awesome. I loved, you know, obviously it's it's super fun reminiscing about the past. That's why we bring these guys on, the Buffalo Bass, Blast from the past. But I thought talking at the end, just his coaching philosophies and just shooting the shit with him about stuff like that, that was my favorite part of the interview. So he was very, very informative and entertaining. Yeah, I really liked him. And Dan, who's the other guy we had? We had Sean Hyken from Bleacher Report, an NBA reporter. He talked to us about the bubble and some of the things the players are dealing with as well as some teams to look out for. And then we had a very fun roundtable discussion. Buckets and I admit we're not the most knowledgeable and intense NBA guys. We love watching the playoffs when they're on, but we brought in two diehards, our good friends, Zach Bowley and Jim Doyle. You might remember Zach from his Minute with Bowl segment that we had back in college and Jim if you're on Twitter, you'll 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 hear him and see him. He's very active on Twitter with his opinions, especially regarding the NBA. So I thought they were great. So please look forward to that. And obviously, Bill mentioned we had our fiancés on for a very fun Mount Rushmore. So. Of wedding songs. Wedding songs. Mount Rushmore of wedding songs. And so. can't forget, because we are now entering, you know, a really great um, – we couple few weeks stretch in the in the PGA Tour. So oh, yeah. just had the WGC 
and we brought on you know our hole in one with a segment but we actually added dan keem to the segment had some really good golf talk and previewed this week's major this week's pga championship bottom line it's a loaded show bill it's a loaded as show. per usual absolutely and like we said the mlb's hanging around and dan i got a question oh, go for ahead because because yep. because you stepped in front of me beforehand yeah. <laughs> go okay so i'm gonna ask you this so last monday um Give or take a few hours ago, it was it was Monday morning. We were getting the news about the Marlins players testing positive, and we were just seeing the numbers rise, rise, and rise. Okay, now there's been games postponed. They've been very cautious about you know um, kind of everything. They seem to have things kind of under control, I guess. Dan, are you are you surprised that? I guess. Are you happy or what? What's your general right, like I, I impressions? Have, yeah. Like, did you think baseball would be shut down by now? If I asked you a week ago, um, I I did, but I have two thoughts on it. Number one, this was bound to happen with the way they're doing it. This was bound to happen. There, I mean, players aren't being locked in their hotel rooms for the most part. I mean, you have reports that you know, going out to eat with some of the coaches for the Marlins might have caused it, and then some of the um, Cardinals going to a casino, I think, might have caused their outbreak. But here's the thing. There's two things that I've gotten from it. Rob Manfred looks completely incompetent. His, you know, coming out and warning the players, like, oh, we're going to shut the season down if you guys don't start taking it more seriously. You're the commissioner. And I know if you listen to part of my take, I'm kind of stealing Big Cat's rant. Why don't you do something? Enforce penalties if players leave, you know, when they're at the hotel room when they're not supposed to. He just looks so incompetent. I didn't think anybody could look more incompetent as a commissioner than Gary Bettman. He's making Gary Bettman look like a Hall of Fame Commissioner, which, by the way, Gary Bettman is a Hall of Fame commissioner, but beside the fact... He's making, he, a, he's making him look like Adam Silver. Yeah, <laughs> and he's been horrible. And But what I do think is that players are starting to get pissed. You see more and more players speaking out, like, start taking seriously. You're ruining it for everybody. So I And it's just like we're both teachers. You can yell at a kid acting up as much as you want, but what really gets the kid to stop, especially in a phys ed setting... Consequences. Consequence, not even that. Not a, but consequences for the whole class. So when you stop and make the whole class get punished, now they start policing themselves, which I think is a lot more effective than the authority hand coming down on them. It's a great analogy. And, Dan, one of your favorite MLB teams we saw, I mean, and they become my favorite MLB team as well. I Why? watched them absolutely collapse. Um, who were they oh, playing? But it was – Yeah, they played the Braves. They were up like 11-4 or something. 8-2, 10-4. Yeah, I mean, so the Mets, I mean, they, they've kind of, they've they've held the top storyline in baseball for the past few days. For the most recent thing with Jonas Cespedes is... What? What? <laughs> I can never say his right Yoannis name. Jonas Cespedes. Yeah, Jonas Cespedes <laughs> being <laughs> literally going AWOL. And no one knows where he is. The Mets put out a statement in like the third inning of their game with the Braves or whoever they were playing yesterday. And Dan, I mean... You know, I, I'm new, so I haven't had my heart broken enough by the Mets. Um, you know, they're still only a couple games out. They just made a trade for Billy Hamilton, who's a speedster. <laughs> Dan, I know you're not exactly on board with okay, what's going right, stop, on right now. Stop talking. Okay. Here, And I brought this in before, and like, oh, you're too hard on them. They're the, they're, it's top to bottom, okay? The organization is built so wrong from top to bottom. They hire an agent to be a GM to try to – you know, mix it up a little bit. So, of course, he's going to bring in his guys that he was an agent for, which is so dumb. So, you trade your top prospect for Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz at a time when relievers are more than any time, you know, being recycled year to year, and it's more bullpen by committee, 
and stuff like that. So you go out and then you obviously have to bring in a deadweight contract like Robinson Cano at the tail end of his career. So what a horrible trade was right from the beginning. And they gave up one of their top pitching prospects in the process. Okay, so having your crappy GM at the helm, that's the start of it. Then he builds a team around power hitting and power arms. And as much as I, I it literally pains me to have this come out of my mouth, but Dan Muscarella always breaks my balls that how the Mets built their team for the future was power arms, which is so stupid in the long run and so unstable with how easily pitchers get hurt. They don't rely on speed. They don't rely on defense. Two things that if you look at every successful team the past five or so years, that's what they do. They don't rely on contact hitting. It's it, They're the most fundamentally unsound. Their lack of ability to get a runner in from third base with less than two outs has cost them multiple games, and it's just infuriating. It's not the 7-8-9 hitters that can't do it. It's Michael Conforto, Pete Alonso. Guys are supposed to be your cornerstone. It is so embarrassing. Put your phone down. Don't film this. Oh, It's so dumb. And like the other day, runner is on second and third for Atlanta. Nobody out. Hard ground ball to third. What does every little league coach tell you to do? Run at the runner. But instead, Jeff McNeil, who has no position really, so because he shouldn't be playing third base, throws it straight home. The runner just stops, goes back to third. They score two runs that inning for their rookie pitcher who's already on the ropes. It's so bad. They're so bad defensively. They have so many players that don't have a position. And then, obviously, it accumulates to their most prolific player just basically quitting on the team. And I'm not saying quitting in a bad way. I know his mother is ill. And it obviously could have to, or does have to do with COVID-related family issues. But you cannot tell me Cespedes hasn't looked around that clubhouse and been like, what is the point? For a guy that, you know, I guess gets called out for how engaged he is in the game anyway, I thought he was having a decent year. He's had a, a few home runs. He's driving the ball okay, but doesn't play the field really. His body's breaking down. He's had a bunch of weird injuries the past year anyway. After that heroic run in 2015, he signs a four-year deal, only plays 127 games since then. Wait, 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 wait. <clears throat> he signed a deal in 2016 and has played how many games since then? I believe it's 127 games since then. He's been so injury-laden. And the thing is, I Mets fans are talking about, you know, he's a quitter, he's a horse of a different color, you know, he's just always a different guy. I'll always love Cespedes. The most fun I've had as a Mets fan was that run that they went on in 2015, and he oh, – he led the or led the team. He was unbelievable. It was that whole Wilmer Flores crying on the field year. So, again, I don't have many positive sports moments in general. That stretch run was one of them. He was absolutely mashing the ball. So I don't really care if he quit the team. I would quit the team. The team is so dysfunctional. I am promise you when I say this, I would have no problem if when they finally get this new ownership in, whether it's Steve Cohen, whether it's the A-Rod group, I don't care. It's going to be someone pretty wealthy that can spend money. Either find somebody else to do it, or if you're going to be this person for the next 20 years, the owner, then just break it down. And don't do the Terry Pagula where you try to put Band-Aids over major holes and try to rush the process. Trade everybody. DeGrom's uh, value is will never be higher than it is right now. And he's on a, not a crazy deal. I mean, obviously, they signed him for a few years. His, his deal's not crazy. Trade him for prospects. Trade your power-hitting first baseman that has a charismatic personality. Trade him. You're, it's a young first baseman that, in my opinion, a power-hitting first baseman is not that hard to find. And obviously, if he's in a sophomore slump right now, he might find it. He's not going to hit 50 home runs every year. He plateaued last year, and it was very fun. He can't play first base either. He's 
Oh, I almost said the F word. He's horrible defensively at first base. Michael Conforto's the same player. He's going to hit you 280. He's going to hit you 30 home runs. He's going to play pretty good defense. Fine. That is trade value to somebody. I want to see DeGrom win. I want to see all these guys win. It's not going to happen in a Mets uniform. Go get an actual center fielder. Not Billy Hamilton. Somebody that can put the ball in play and maybe catch a fly all out in center field. They have just con- J.D. Davis, no position, just a guy that can hit. Jeff McDeal, no position, just a guy that can hit. Their number five prospect in baseball, Rosario, is just an average shortstop. He was in the same discussions as Lindor and those guys. He's so average. And they got this other guy coming up that's blocked by Cano. So they can't even play the Jimenez kid. It's so bad. Stroman's a clown. He's, they, they, I think Syndergaard's the most overrated player in baseball. Trade everybody. Start over. I'm so sick of this organization. Give me, I don't care if you have five years of 100 straight losses. I am signing up for that right now over this bullshit lineup they're throwing out every day. Hey, Dan, your fiance's calling. I think you should take about 10 deep breaths before you pick up the phone. <laughs> I'm going to ignore that. So that, that's that's my rant. I'm done with that. I, I'm just so sick of the team. And, and for all those guys, I think it's so funny to text me. How, how, how are the Mets this year? How are the Mets this year? And I think one in particular knows who I'm talking about. I said they were going to be terrible from the beginning, and it is frustrating. So that's it. That's my rant. I love it. So let's send it over now to our roundtable discussion. We are going to be talking to Zach Boley and Jim Doyle about the NBA. Here we go. We are now doing our NBA roundtable discussion. For that, we bring in two local celebrities, two local experts on the game of basketball. If you remember him from his SUNY Cortland days as a, as a corresponding guest, a minute with Bull, Zach Boley. He joins us. Zach, how you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And we also are bringing back Jim Doyle, a huge hoops enthusiast, very, very knowledgeable. And these guys are here to kind of lead the discussion on everything that has been going on in the NBA and everything that we have to look forward to. So, Dan, I mean – we let's let's be honest. We're not as knowledgeable as we probably should be in the game of basketball right now. I'm st- it's starting to pique my interest. I got really into the Lakers Clipper game the other night. Uh, I'll try and watch a game today. Uh, your general impressions, guys, of everything you have seen over the last week or so in the NBA. Let's start with you, Jim. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I really think that the basketball tournament set the table just to show you that the bubble can work. It was uh, a really small sample size, and it was basically, you know, lose, pack your bags right before the game. Loser, you're right, right off the door. Um, I'm confident the NBA can pull this off. I was just a little skeptical to even bring back pro sports. I just don't think it's a good idea to begin with. But I think the NBA is in a good spot. They seem to have adequate testing. Everybody's buying in. Um, and once you get through these eight games, you're going to get another eight teams, six, eight teams out the door anyways. Yeah, and I didn't know that after the first round of the playoffs, those teams remaining are allowed to bring in, like, some family, which is good, too. I'd, that'd be a long time without seeing any family. So, Zach, your general impressions overall, has the viewing experience been any different? Do you think it'd be weird as a player if you heard, you know, if you read anything about how players are, you know, reacting to the different situation, or does it seem to be settling in with everyone? Um, no, I think for the most part, when, when you hear from the players, um, they talk about how once they're on the court between those lines, they really, they can, 
their competitive spirit really takes over and they kind of uh, zone everything out. And in terms of a basketball enthusiast, um, I couldn't be more thrilled with how things are going. I mean, obviously we've seen what's, what's going on with the MLB and uh, all those positive cases there. The uh, NBA did a phenomenal job with this bubble. I think that, um, you know, their commissioner is the best in sports. Uh, he seems to always make the right decisions. And, uh, yeah, in terms of viewing experience, I uh, kept my ex expectations pretty low going into it. And um, I've been extremely impressed. I thought they did, did an awesome job with all the courts. I like the, uh, the wraparound virtual boards that they're using digital fans on um, and then, you know, actually giving the home team. Um, you know, their own fans and stuff like that. So as a viewing experience, I've loved it. I think it's very close to what it usually would be, and it makes me very excited for the upcoming playoffs. And as we look at the standings as they stand, obviously they allowed more than just the original eight teams that were left in the playoffs. So there is a battle, mostly out west. You have, I believe you still have the, the um, Wizards there, but they're so far out that it would be a miracle for them to make it. So, Jim, can you do me a favor, since obviously you're a huge Spurs fan and they're still fighting for a playoff, can you just explain to us how – the situation works. I know like the teams way far back, they have to win more games than the teams that are slotted ahead of them. I believe that's correct. So can you explain that to us for a little bit? Sure thing. So um, I think the NBA kind of does this constellation just to sneak in one Eastern conference team. Right. I think they had a few or five and a half games back or six games back when the season ended, you would get into this bubble. So as it stands now, the wizards are six games out. They're probably not going to do it. Even though if you combine Brooklyn and Washington's teams, you probably even wouldn't get a very good NBA team right now with all the guys they have out. Right. Um, but, yeah, you're right. The, the race really is in the West. But, Jim, you are you have to be pumped that Jamal Crawford did finally sign. You know, it took a global pandemic <laughs> and about, you know, four actual NBA players taking a seat. But that man is back where he belongs. Yep, absolutely. So, what about out West? Can you break it down out West? Yeah, out West is loaded. So, if you finish – Within four games of the eighth seed, you, what some people are calling it, you get qualified for so, kind of like Gus Macker style. Eight seed, consider them, you know, the winner they haven't lost yet. They have to win one game against that nine seed to advance. Oh, okay. Otherwise, nine seed gets two cracks at beating them. So if nine seed beat them game one, great. You still got to beat them game two to get in. Um, but here's the thing now. What happens if more than two teams are within four games? Right now, that's the case. There's several teams that are four games out from the eighth seed. So are you going to have a, a round robin between three teams? Are going to have four teams play a two-game playoff kind of thing? It just opens the door for a lot of cool possibilities, but maybe um, it's probably a problem the NBA doesn't want to deal with. They would probably rather just figure out these eight games and get right into things. Wait, we don't know the answer to that? Was that a rhetorical question? I don't. I honestly do not know what happens if more than one team finishes within four games back. What, how do you do strength of schedule? How do you do – what's your tiebreaker? They got screwed with the season already. What are you yeah, getting based on how well you did in the bubble? There's five teams right now that that is the case, isn't it? If I'm yes. The good thing is that a lot of those teams are playing each other so oh, that it should get resolved. But still, what, what if all those teams go 500? Right. You're back where you were. <laughs> That's interesting. So, and, I, and obviously, it's interesting what they did with Zion, kind of rushing him back. First of all, expanding it's just so that the Pelicans are in it, but also rushing him back from COVID. Then he barely plays. It, that kind of seems like a waste, having that team in, because I don't think they'd really do anything at this stage anyway. So, Zach, since I want to ask somebody not biased, what team do you think could scare your Lakers the most if they sneak in as an eighth seed out of Memphis, Portland, the Spurs, the Kings, and the Pelicans? Yeah, I mean, I think the easy answer for, for mostly everybody would be the Trailblazers. They have some playoff experience. They have some big-name players. 
Obviously, we've seen what Damian Lillard can do in the playoffs. He's hit some some huge shots in his career. So I would say them, um, especially with the combination of with him and C.J. McCollum, as well as uh, Skinny Mellow now. Um, they also have a couple big men uh, that were hurt back uh, in, in terms of Yusuf Nurkic and Zach Collins. So I would say Portland for the most part, um, although the Lakers, I do believe, have the, the Trailblazers number for the most part the last couple of years. Um, Memphis, um, I think, would be an easier out for the Lakers just because they're a little bit younger. But um, you know, at this point, they got a, a two and a half game lead on the on the Trailblazers still. So we'll see what happens. Six games or seven games left here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how that Western Conference finishes. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but I've been following hockey a little bit more, and there's a bunch of stories about guys that should have been out for the year that are now getting a chance to play in the playoffs because of this break. Are there any notable NBA players that that's the case for that they were pretty much supposed to be done for the year, but now are back for the playoffs? Uh, no, not that I believe in, uh, there was a couple, I mean, obviously at first people thought maybe that KD or Kyrie would come back for the, for the nets, which didn't happen. Um, I wouldn't say there's any big name players that wouldn't be playing. Now there are definitely a good sum of players that were banged up that this, the, the last four months really gave them a chance to get healthy. I mean, if you guys have seen the Clippers play, Paul George has looked incredible so far, I think because he's hundred percent healthy finally and his shoulders are all good. So, um, and like I said, Yusuf Nurkic has been out for a long time uh, with a pretty serious injury. I'm not sure if he would have been able to play if the season uh, ended at the normal time. So no one really big name, but definitely a couple players that are hundred percent healthy now. And how about players that have opted out? I know the Lakers lost Rondo and Avery Bradley. Are there any other notable names that opted out? And how do you think those opt outs? Well, we'll start with you, Zach, how those opt outs are going to affect the Lakers. And then Jim, if you could think of anybody else that, opted out that might make a big deal here too go ahead Jack. yeah so uh avery bradley opted out rondo actually got injured he'll be back uh you know oh, okay. possibly by the uh beginning of the second round of the playoffs um, uh yeah i mean the, the avery bradley loss for the lakers i think is pretty huge um obviously he's a phenomenal defender um he's not not much of a wing defender more of a guard but he can definitely guard a point guard or a shooting guard and, and the best part about him on defense is he pressures 94 feet yep. so he really disrupts uh you know teams offenses and really gets the shot clock down on, on different teams so uh for the lakers it's going to be a big loss you're gonna have to see guys like danny green and, and alex caruso and contavious caldwell pope really step up for the, for the lakers jim yeah i really don't think there's been too many opt-outs that are going to impact things in the grand scheme of the way the playoffs are going to shake out um, but just getting back to injuries and how you, you're saying, you know, like if this gets guys like Ben Simmons even a chance to, you know, get healthy throughout the year. But that cuts both ways because you got guys that are in the prime of their lives. They're geared up for games. All of a sudden, you pull off in between. Now, even if you're 100% healthy, you're still not playing games. You're still not, you know, in the best shape you were previous. True. Now you're coming back in, trying to go full speed, risking soft tissue injury, uh, you know, re-aggravating something. Anything can happen. Look at all the freak injuries we've seen, um, you know, exhibition games, guys playing for FIBA, USA basketball, yep. stuff like that. Injuries can happen anytime, but now with 140 days off, even if you were 100% healthy going into this, you got no idea what's in store for you. Hey, Zach, I got a question to piggyback, piggyback, off, what you were <laughs> piggyback <laughs> off what you were saying about the Lakers. <laughs> You know who really impresses me every time I watch is Alex Caruso, and I want to ask you about him because I feel like he is the perfect complement or a perfect guard to play with LeBron James. He's really good on defense. He's more of a facilitator. He's not going to take up many shots, which is you know key for that Laker offense. And like you said, they lost Bradley, Rondo for at least an extended period of time right now. I mean – it, I think he's very good and helps them a lot, and he's going to be tested, you know, going forward because they don't have many guys behind him. 
Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right with everything you said. AC has been phenomenal for the Lakers. I knew a lot about Caruso back in college as a Kentucky basketball fan. Uh, he played in the SEC with Texas A&M, so I thought he was a great player in college. And he just does all the right things on, on the court. He, he pressures, you know, full court. He's always getting in passing lanes. He communicates. Uh, you know, the Lakers actually played last night against the Raptors, and I thought they looked pretty lethargic as a team. And he was really the energy spot that was that was getting the team going and actually got the the game tied up there in the fourth quarter. So Caruso is going to be huge for them, like you said, in the absence of Avery Bradley. And I think his minutes will, will continue to increase, especially in playoff times, because he makes all the right plays. And if you look at net ratings, uh, when he's on the court with LeBron and AD at the same time, the Lakers have an unbelievable offensive net rating and defensive net rating. So he does all the right things on the basketball court. Are you nervous that you guys only beat the Clippers by two, but they were without Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell? Or do you think that, you know, it's the same thing. Once everyone's there, everyone picks up their own game. Clippers made a lot of threes in that game, too. Yeah, I think it's a game-by-game game type of thing. And uh, I will say that I think both teams look very, very sloppy, so I would almost just throw that game right out the door. I mean, um, you know, LeBron obviously was was pretty bad offensively. The Lakers missed a lot of shots. I think the Clippers missed a lot of shots. I think both teams had a ton of turnover, turnovers as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it makes a difference with, with Lou Will and Montrez there, but I think guys stepped up in their absence anyway. So. Jim, Talk to us about the rest of the Western Conference. So outside the two LA teams, does anybody else pose a legitimate threat? Hey, how about Denver? And who are I'm some? actually glad you asked that. Um, I if I had to pick a second team, it would probably be Denver, just because I like the way they play. Uh, I love Jokic, yep. great passing big man. I don't know if they're a real threat. I like them a lot, but the Spurs took them to seven last year, so I don't know. But Denver's a super interesting team. They can roll out. You want to talk positionless basketball? They are the new positionless team. They had Jokic playing guard yesterday. Amazing. Just, you well, know, how just. Do they, how do they defend out, but, then? Like, how is he supposed to defend a guard? They just play matchups later. Like, I think he was defending, uh, like, Jay Crowder, or he wouldn't, like, he wouldn't cover Bam, but he'd, right. he'll cover, like, a clunkier guy that, you know, he's not really a threat, just someone you might have to close out and funnel back in. Bully, someone close to your heart, can you tell us how excited you are to watch Bull Bull play? Oh, I love it, man. I really. Uh, the Nuggets have done an incredible job drafting between him and Michael Porter Jr. the last two years, two extremely talented guys, two enigmas really uh, that were passed up by a lot of NBA teams. And uh, he's awesome to watch guys, seven foot two. He looks like basically a, a wing player out there, the way he can shoot it and handle it. And it should be uh, really cool to watch him continue to grow over the next couple of years. What do you guys think about Utah? You think they have any chance to make a run? Not a shot. Now that Bogdanovich is out. Yeah. All right. Is that yeah. That huge I, I, I agree huge. with you. I agree with Jim. Yeah, he was a huge player. He averaged over 20 a game for them this year. Um, that was a huge hit losing him for the rest of the year. So um, Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Rudy Gobert, good threesome there. But I don't think they can get past really the second round. Got it. Yeah, and, and is it true that now they've been trying to dispel the rumors, but the, do Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert hate each other after all this? I don't think they hate each other. I just think there's kind of like a, you know, man, you kind of started this. You, you kind of – but Rudy Gobert might have saved a lot of lives True. or at least, you know, a lot of headache. But I, I think there's still that, Rudy, you're kind of a pest and you're kind of immature to begin with anyways. That's a good point. Let's take it out east. How the heck are the Raptors 47-18 and 18 after they lose Kawhi? That's unbelievable to Pascal me. Pascal Siakam. Nick Nurse. Yeah. He is willing to switch anything. He's willing to try anything new. He will throw any combos together. He's got guys playing all over the court. Something's not working, even at this you know, his, his better switcher. Did they get Did they anybody this offseason? No, not really. That's they insane. lost Danny Green. They lost Kawhi. Right. That's insane. 
And do you think these Celtics or the Heat? I think the Heat are the popular team to say that they pose the biggest threat to the Bucks. But do you do you think it's realistic to think the Bucks could lose to any of these teams, or is it going to be the Bucks versus whoever comes out of the West? Um, I mean, I think I think the Bucks are vulnerable. I mean, um, we've seen what teams can do in terms of defensive schemes within a series on Giannis. I think he's definitely improved since last year's playoffs, but. Um, I really think it's almost a toss up between all those teams you mentioned. I, I like the Heat. I like the Celtics. I think they both pose, um, you know, different threats to the Bucks in a series. Um, I do think that the Bucks have obviously the highest chance to come out, um, but I can very well see them going seven games with, you know, any of any of those teams. All right. Since our guy from Bleacher Report wouldn't do it, I need your official predictions for the finals. You don't have to tell me who wins the finals because we'll bring you back on as the finals start, but. Who are your finals picks right now just to get there? Well, I really want it to be Denver and Milwaukee or Denver and Toronto. But it sounds boring. I really think it's they're hungry. They've been knocking on the door. Giannis is arguably the best two-way player in the league. I think it's just going to be Lakers-Bucks. Keep it that simple. It's the best two teams in the league. Bully? Well, I'll play devil's advocate here with, with Jim's pick. I'm going to go... Uh, Clippers, Raptors, interesting matchup. I Kawhi, you don't believe that for a second. Kawhi, 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 Kawhi facing the uh, his, his old teammates in Toronto. Um, you know, I, I like Toronto. I mean, I listen, I watched them play against the Lakers last night and I couldn't believe how good they look. Uh, like Jim said, Nick Nurse is my coach of the year, in my opinion, for what he's done after losing Kawhi and Danny Green. Pascal's a rising star. Um, I just like them. I don't know. I think in a, in a defensive, uh, uh, you know, series between the Bucks. I think they could shut down Giannis. So I like them in the East and the Clippers. I think they're just deeper than the Lakers. As much as I love, uh, you know, LeBron, AD and the Lakers there. Um, I just think they have a deeper team. And when it comes down to it, that, uh, you know, Kawhi and Paul are going to be tough to stop. All right. Well, let's roll that right into our season awards. You mentioned Nick Nurse is your coach of the year. Jim, would you agree with that? Yeah, you can make a case for a lot of guys, but I really think it's Nick Nurse just, you know, losing two great perimeter wing defenders and, you know, arguably your best player is probably better than Siakam still. Um, and being right where they're at. Guys had them, I think Dennis Scott had them maybe not have been in the playoffs. Right. Mid-season right. or uh, off-season predictions. So I think it's Nick Nurse. You can make a case for some other guys like Budenholzer, but he's got everything set up. He's got great player to play it with. How about Billy Donovan in OKC yeah, with I think, Paul George and Westbrook? That's a great pick. Be my second. I think Billy Donovan would be my second. Nice. How about rookie of the year? It's got to uh, be Ja. Yeah, it's got to be Ja. I totally agree. Okay. Any stats uh, to back that up? Yeah, he, he played way more games and he's leading all rookies. Okay. Uh, but the only other thing I would say with rookie of the year is obviously Zion in a bigger sample size would probably win this. Uh, but a guy like Kendrick Nunn, and then like a rookie of the year run. Um, and then you look at a guy like Colby White in Chicago had some really good games, and that's a horrible team. He won't get any love, but I think it is just give it to John and let it go. Real quick, what do you guys think about the uh, Thibodeau to the Knicks? Is that going to help lure free agents at all? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> um, I got something. Go ahead. Dan, let's just go on record with our NBA Finals predictions. And you, you can't use the teams that were already picked, all right? So they already used the Clippers. What? <laughs> that's, that's the dumbest. Well, thing I'm, I'm I'm going Nuggets Celtics. Okay, I'm gonna go Bucks Clippers. Okay. 
Does anybody have any confidence in the Philadelphia 76ers? Because I, have I, zero, none. I never do because Embiid's made of glass and Simmons can't really shoot it. I don't think yeah. they like each other either. They don't have a lot of chemistry. I think they don't like playing with each other. Boston has their number too. Yeah. I hate Boston, so I refuse to even acknowledge that they might go far. What about your boy uh, Spolster? You don't think he can weasel his way back to the finals there, Bully? Um, I mean, possibly, I think the East is, is, uh, a much tougher conference now. I think there's just better teams. I mean, I like their whole entire organization, the program they got in Miami. Um, they get people to buy in. I mean, Jimmy Butler's had an awesome year, um, as a, f- a facilitator and, and defending and, and, and obviously Bam's made a huge uh, jump in his production. Um, so I like Miami. I think they have a chance. They're a sleeper. I mean, no one really knows what can happen in a playoff environment within this type of bubble situation. Anything can really happen. I mean, it's be interesting to see. I think guys are really going to be able to get into a zone because of the not traveling and playing on basically the same court and the same feel on an every other night basis. So you'll see guys like TJ Warren last night uh, had 53 points, uh, made nine threes. So, I mean, TJ you'll Warren? see guys get, get absolutely locked in, I think, especially in a playoff series. Who is TJ Warren? TJ Warren plays for the Pacers. He's a small forward. He went uh, to NC State. He's been around the league uh, for a few years. He used to play for the Suns. Um, he's a bag of beans. The Suns traded him for nothing. Yeah, he's got he's on a, he's on a great contract as well. So yeah, he dropped fifty three last night. Let me ask you guys this. I mean, Zach, you just brought up a good point. There's like far if like good teams with good leadership actually take this bubble thing as serious as humanly possible. I mean, you're eliminate. You're essentially eliminating so many distractions, and you know, once teams get ramped up and they kind of knock the rust off, I think we might see like some absolutely fantastic basketball down the stretch. You know? Yeah. No, you're gonna see a lot of high scoring games. I don't know if anyone saw the uh, the Rockets yeah, uh, game the other night. Um, I think the finals like 155 to 149 or something like that. Um, so, like I said, I think guys are really going to get in the zone, get locked in. Like you said, there's minimal distractions. They can really focus on basketball, and that's about it. Um, so you're going to see a lot of exciting, close, maybe a lot of overtime games and a lot of high-scoring games for sure. Jim, what other so with that, though, They definitely needed these eight games because we are talking about Clippers-Lakers. That game was horrible just was in so terms of the flow of the game, the pace of the game. The refs were blowing their whistle all the time. It was very clunky. Spacing wasn't right. It's definitely going to take offenses longer to get more acquainted. Earlier, and they'll be more prepared schematically. Offense, there's just a lot of moving parts, and you can see they definitely need these eight games just to gear up for the playoffs. I would agree with that. I mean, when you take that big of a layoff, you're obviously going to want to warm up a little bit before. That's why I think it's interesting that hockey only did like one exhibition game before they go. But let's finish up our awards. Jim, did you, I believe you had an all-defensive team maybe? Yeah, this one's really easy. The first team is super easy to me. Uh, it's got to be Ben Simmons, Marcus Smart, Giannis, Anthony Davis. Feel free. Uh, I think the second team, you can get a little more pick and choosy. And then the third team, if you really want to do a third team. But Zach, would you disagree with any of those five that Jim mentioned? No, I have the same five. I think Gobert, Davis, and Giannis are shoe-ins. Um, you can make an argument for Kawhi in the first team. I don't think he played enough games. I think he did he load manage a little bit too much this year. Uh, ben Simmons, I think he's a, a sleeper for defensive player of the year over the next couple of years. He's an incredible defensive player. And Marcus Smart's just a grinder and needs to be on that first team. Who's your defensive player of the year, Zach? Um, I would say uh, AD. Um, it's a really a toss-up. You can give it to Giannis. I think Giannis is going to get MVP. I think voters might be a little reluctant to vote for him in both categories. Um, 
So I think it's a toss-up. I think AD uh, gets it just because of the improvement defensively from the Lakers last year compared to this year with his addition. I think he actually uh, fueled LeBron a lot on that end as well. I think he's been uh, pretty geared up on the defensive end because of AD, so I'd give it to AD. Jim, do you disagree with either of Zach's Defensive Player of the Year or MVP picks? Not necessarily. I agree with his analysis of it. You know, for me, if you're the MVP this year, it's going to be under a lot of scrutiny because I think Giannis is MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. It makes sense. The best player will dominate both sides of the floor. But I think the voters will want to give some love to the Lakers and recognize what they've done this year. And I'm sure Giannis would rather have MVP than defensive player. So give Giannis MVP and AD. He's totally worthy of defensive player of the year. But I do think that Giannis is just a, a notch above him. Okay. Any final thoughts from either of you? Yeah, I did a little charting of just the, what we can call the bubble teams in the bubble, which are those five or six Western Conference teams trying to duke it out. Um, the Suns are really out yeah. of it. And the Suns also have zero games in which they are playing one of those other bubble teams. So they have the least amount of opportunities to help their cause. Got and they're just a poorly run team to begin with. Yeah. But um, oddly enough, the Pelicans, who have already lost their first two games, have four games remaining against teams that are in contention for that eight or nine seed. So they can really help their cause, but if they're going to baby um, Zion, if they're going to baby Zion along the way, then what's the point? Like you said, why you know why are you even in the bubble if right. you're not trying to win? Yeah, and Zach, actually, I want your final thought. You brought it up to me. You were actually the the inspiration for this roundtable. You sent us a nice Q and A that now with all the all the players around each other and the tampering that will most inevitably go on. Who are some players you could see teaming up? Who are some players that you think want out of their current situation? Um, so I think I, I actually mentioned this to you off the air, but I have an inside source. Can't say who that is. That tells me, uh, there's a, there's a chance that Giannis might take a look at Dallas and to, to team up with Luca after next season. Uh, if he doesn't win this year or next year, I think that that's a place he might look. I think he's, he's seen how great, uh, Dallas is with international players between Dirk, uh, Steve Nash from Canada, as well as, uh, Luca and obviously, uh, Christoph's Porzingis now, I think to make that work, they would have to do a sign and trade for KP. Uh, but that's one. A couple players that I think you could see on the move over the next year or so. Uh, I think Bradley Beal, that name's been thrown around a lot. Um, you know, he's a highly productive productive player that's looking to finally win some games, I doesn't think, it, over the last few years, obviously, without Wall. They've been struggling. Doesn't he have a crazy um, I know contract? Zach, Zach, sorry? Doesn't he have a crazy contract, though? Uh, he does. He has a, a, a very large contract. It'll be tough to move him, but I know teams are already asking about him. A um, couple other players real fast. Uh, Donovan Mitchell. Devin Booker, Zach Levine, three guards, I think, um, you know, might definitely be on the move at some point. Uh, and like you mentioned before, Simmons and Embiid seem to be kind of a weird fit. Um, I think that experiment is kind of getting close to the end if they don't find a way to even get to the finals at this point. Um, and I think they value Simmons more than Embiid because of his uh, his defensive potential. Um, so I think you could see Embiid on the move at some point. I think the Sixers might at some point get, get sick of his personality a little bit, and you could see him obviously. What about, what about the dude for Orlando? Who's their really good player? Talking about Vucevic? Vucevic. Yeah. I watched the game the other day. He was literally unbelievable. And I can't imagine. Like, those are the guys that you normally go somewhere else. Guys are stuck in, like, a crappy place like Orlando, just bottom dwelling. And then they obviously get moved. And then what sucks is that usually it's too late in their career where they really make an impact. But I don't want that guy being stuck down there. He should be somewhere where it's prime time all the time. That's the Buckets and Dan last thought of this NBA roundtable. So, 
we <laughs> we thank you very much. We appreciate your insight, and I think I can speak for Bill when I say that the only roundtable better than this is the Inside the NBA crew, and it is so great having that crew back on the air. Shaq, I think Shaq's with us right now. Bill. Hey, boys, what's going on? <laughs> so, Shaq here. Shaq, hey. Too big, you too little. <laughs> You too good. Yeah, just happy to be back with you guys. Ernie. Ernie, I've been talking to you. It's barbecue right. chicken, baby. Uh, so that will do it. Zach, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Jim, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Alrighty then. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Jim. That was excellent. We are now going to send it over for some more NBA talk, and that is with Bleacher Report's own out of Portland, Oregon, Sean Hyken. Here we go. This interview is brought to you by Arista Networks. Arista Networks is an industry leader in campus, Wi-Fi, data center, and cloud computing. Learn more about Arista at arista.com. NBA resuming this weekend. We now welcome on Sean Hyken from Bleacher Report to talk all things basketball. Sean, thank you so much for taking time for, with us this morning. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. And before we get started, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you fell in love with the game and your path to your current role at Bleacher Report? Well, I grew up in Portland, so I was a huge uh, Trailblazers fan growing up because, you know, they were the only team that... Uh, the only like professional team, you know, in, in the city. And so I, you know, I grew up going to a lot of Blazer games. This was kind of during the era where like, it was like Damon Stockmeyer or these Sabonis receive balls, Brian Grant, like Brian Grant was my guy. But so like that, you know, that was kind of how I got into the NBA. And then, you know, I was always a good writer in school. And so I just kind of always, you know, at, at, at a certain point, I just kind of decided, obviously I'm not going to be a player. So, you know, that's obviously not going to happen. So I just figured, you know, this would be a good way to you know, still kind of be involved in it and, and still, you know, do that. And so I, you know, I, I start, I started to go back in, back in you know, about 10 or 12 years ago, you know, when I was in college, we, you know, the, the, uh, the NBA blogging game was very much, uh, still sort of a pathway to actually making a career out of this in a way that it, it maybe is not now. And so I was able to kind of make my way and kind of build a name for myself that way. And then shortly after I graduated from college, I got hired by USA Today as uh, the NBA writer for their site for the win. That was like a social, they're like the social news site that they were launching at the time. And so I did that for about a year. And then I, you know, I started kind of writing other places. Bleacher Report, I got connected with through, you know, a friend who was also writing there. And this was right around the time that they were just starting to, because remember Bleacher Report back, uh, like back in the day, uh, Bleacher Report was like a site that like anybody could write for. And there was just like no quality control at all. And it right. was just kind of like a joke within the industry. Then around 2012, they got bought by Turner and they started, you know, becoming more legitimate and, you know, having more credibility. Like they hired Howard Beck around that time. They hired you know, some other folks around that time who were, real reporters who had been in the game for a long time. And so they were starting to actually be, you know, be legit and, you know, throw a little bit more money at reporters who actually were not just kind of writing like clickbait slideshows. And so I start, you know, I started writing for them around that time. And then I think my biggest, you know, I think the biggest step I took in my career was in 2016, 17, I took a job with the athletic uh, covering the bulls. This was back when the athletic was still just like a startup and was, 
not really like you know it wasn't it wasn't the thing that it is now it was still just like a site that nobody had ever really heard of and chicago was the only market that they were in and so i was their bold beat writer because i was living in chicago at the time and they you know long story i don't really want to get into it but they didn't renew my contract at the end of that season and so i just kind of went back to bleacher report and i've been there ever since so i guess that's i guess that's the short version of it gotcha and as we move into this season sean the bubble seems to be working in terms of keeping the cases lo- as low as possible. And, you know, besides the hilarious case of like Lou Williams going to get wings at a strip club and the Kings player leaving for some takeout, it seems like players are starting to settle in it from what you've read and people you've talked to. Does it seem like players are starting to settle in and get, you know, be used to their surroundings and be pretty much set to go moving forward? Well, unless unless you're talking about like Dwight Howard not wanting to wear a mask, that's kind of the one right. example you can give as a, a counterexample to it. But you know, I think it's too early to really take a victory lap on if you're the NBA as far as you know the bubble working. But so because there's just I mean there's just so much time still. The, the yep. game, the real games only started last night. There's still a whole rest of the regular season and then the whole playoffs left to play. So there's still a ton of time for somebody to come into the bubble who is infected and and then the whole thing falls apart but as of right now you can't really say that they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing there have been you know there have been a couple of guys who tested positive while they were in the quarantine stage but then they never left the quarantine stage there have still to this day since everybody got there a little less than a month ago been zero positive tests inside the actual bubble and you know you have to look at it and say that's that's a success, and I think the reason for that is they're just—they're not messing around with the protocol. Whether you know Rashawn Holmes going to take you know to pick up a Postmates order is not like the most—you know—you you don't look at that and say, "Wow, that's just an egregious violation." That's a pretty harmless thing to do, and he's fine. I mean, I mean, he's, and he's probably fine. Like, it's probably not going to hurt anybody, but they are taking it so seriously that they still made him quarantine for 10 days, which is the right thing to do. But that just kind of shows you that even for something minor like that, they're just not messing around with the rules. That's how seriously they're taking it. And that's why I think it has a chance to work. The big test to me is going to be after the first round of the playoffs, when players are going to start being allowed to let their families and their kids come into the bubble. And that's just when you, you know, anytime you start to introduce more people, into the bubble like that, that that's why i was kind of thinking it was a risk to have 22 teams there but because that's just more people and more people that could bring the virus in and spread it and so when players bring their families and their kids in a little later maybe like a month from now or at you know after the first round of the playoffs then that might be the next hurdle for if they can get past that without any anybody bringing the virus into the bubble then then that's when you can say okay i think this might actually work And Sean Buckets here. Last night we got our first taste of basketball. I did not catch the Pelicans-Jazz game, but I saw the highlights and I watched the Laker-Clipper game in entirety. I'm sure you did too. And it just, to me, was was a playoff-type atmosphere. I loved it. I couldn't take my eyes off the game. Uh, Exactly what the NBA probably wanted to pique people's interest. You know, full slate of games tonight. I mean, just, I guess, your overall impressions of how last night went. I think you have to look at it as a success. And I, I also think that, obviously, I'm sure it looks weird and different if you're one of the reporters in the bubble or you're somebody watching it live on site. But as a TV product, I don't think it looked that different. It, you know, it was maybe a little bit quieter because, you know, there's no fans there. But even then, they had kind of those weird virtual fans, and I thought that was a little bit weird. But 
overall, I thought it pretty much looked like a normal game as far as how the, how it was presented on TV and the basketball in a lot of cases. I mean, there was it was a little bit sloppy still, which you kind of expect because these guys haven't played a real competitive game in four months. But the basketball was a lot closer to regular basketball than I maybe expected that it would be at this point, and that's only going to get better. So I think the NBA has to look at it, especially, you know, both games were close. Uh, first of all, and then, you know, they had, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the last bit of the game, you know, LeBron hits, hits a shot to, you know, to, to give the Lakers the lead and then locks down Kawhi Leonard on the last possession. Like you can't really ask for a better, you know, a better, better theater than that, especially since most people think that the Clippers and the Lakers are going to be the Western conference finals. So they opened the first night of the season with the, with basically what would be a preview of the conference finals in a lot of people's minds that is also a really competitive game and ends with LeBron James having two big play. Like, I don't know how the NBA could ask for anything better than that for their return. It was great watching inside the NBA afterwards. You know, I really miss those guys. And Charles Barkley went on record, and I know he said in the past, and I'd like to ask you about this, if the Trailblazers can hold on to the eighth seed, he kind of has his bold take of uh, basketball is that they can upset the Lakers in an 8-1 series. Can you see this as a possibility? Yeah, Charles Barkley says a lot of things. I don't know. I mean, this is here's the thing. I don't think that I, I you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick that. But this is also just a year where you can't really look at anything and say you know anything in terms of who's going to win what series. I think the closest analog to this, in my mind, is the 1999 lockout season, where they basically played 50 games in two and a half months. And then the Knicks made the finals as an eight seed. If there's any year where it could be something like that, where just something totally weird happens if, for a team like the, the Blazers, if they were to get in to actually upset the Lakers, I could see it happening this year just because of how weird it is. But no, in terms of like just on paper, how those teams match up, no, I would not pick that. And as we look at the standings here, Sean, the East, it seems to be the Bucks. you know, maybe – the Raptors can give them a run, but it seems to be the Bucks versus the world there. Is is there any real threat to Milwaukee? And how you got to think that the window's closing before Giannis is going to want a championship. So how how much pressure is this management on to get something done in the next few years? There is a lot of pressure on them. He's a free agent in a year, a year next season. So, you know, there's just a lot of talk around the league that, hey, you know, maybe he might look to do something else if they can't win a championship by then i mean i think that i think there is a lot of pressure on them for that but i i i also just like i'm 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 not really like at, the, at this point like i'm not really worried about like oh he's gonna leave he's gonna like i think there's a chance he might but i'm also just not really like that's that's just not really what i'm thinking about right now as far as like their competition i think on paper it, it's just like what i just said with the with the lakers like on paper yeah they are the best team in the east they are the favorites but this is a year where I could see some weird stuff happening just because of the circumstances. I think Toronto is a really good team. I think even, you know, even without Kawhi, that's a team that the reason that I think that the Raptors are so good this year, even after losing Kawhi is that last year, they had a lot of experience playing without him because he was not playing on back-to-backs and he had all these minutes limits and this load management plan. So it's not like all of these guys just don't know what to do when they lose Kawhi. Like these guys all have experience playing together without him. And they're also just so well coached and they're so deep and all of their guys are really solid. And Pascal Siakam has made the leap the last couple of years into being an actual star instead of like being a role player. So the Raptors are a team that I think actually has a chance. The other one in my mind is uh, Miami 
just because, I mean, first of all, we know how good Jimmy Butler is in playoff environments already, but also uh, Bam Adebayo, I think, is one of a couple of guys in the league. It's like him, Kawhi, and LeBron when he's locked in, who can actually guard Giannis. There's not that many guys in the league who can actually defend him, but Bam is one of those guys that can. And so I think those are the two teams, Miami and Toronto, that I would say those guys, yeah, those guys actually have a shot against, against Milwaukee. I would still say Milwaukee's the favorite, but it's just like in the East or in the West, I could see there being kind of something you don't expect happen just because the circumstances are so unprecedented. If that's the case, do, do the Lakers and Bucks have any weaknesses, Sean? And how would a team go about exploiting them? Well, I think the Lakers' biggest issue is their lack of guard depth with, uh, you know, they lost Rajon Rondo, which, you know, you can say, okay, he's past his prime, but Rondo, the last couple times he's been in the playoffs with the Bulls and with the Pelicans, he kind of takes us to a different level in the playoffs. The whole playoff Rondo thing, you know, it's real. You know, it seems like kind of a punchline, but it is real. And then Avery Bradley is also a huge loss for them, especially with how important he is defensively. You're basically putting a lot of pressure on Alex Caruso to guard the other team's best guard. And, I, you know, he did a very good job last night. He had some good defensive plays. He is a good defender. But that's a lot to ask one guy to do without having somebody like Avery Bradley there also. So that's that's what I would maybe look at with the Lakers, and then with Milwaukee, it's just like I think I think Milwaukee is really good, and I think Chris Middleton is a lot better player than he was last year. I think he can kind of create his own shot now in a way that he couldn't before. I do think that you know what Toronto was able to do last year in the conference finals was just force Giannis to shoot, and Giannis is not a great outside shooter still. And so if you can force him to shoot, then you know maybe you've got a chance. If you can just keep him from attacking the paint, then that that may be like the one thing you can exploit to kind of slow him down. Right. And then as we look up and down the West standings, a lot of intriguing teams, a lot of elite players leading those teams. And I think the Nuggets team sticks out for me. Obviously a great record. They're well coached. And I saw they were rolling with a very unique lineup the other night in terms of how many forwards they had at once. They had Jokish at a guard spot. Outside of the Lakers out West, could they possibly be the most challenging team to defend with how versatile their lineup is up and down? They could. I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of the Nuggets just because we still don't know how many of their guys they're gonna have. They had they're the team that basically like, like half their team basically didn't come to the bubble because of different circumstances, which you can maybe oh, really? infer what they are, even though a lot of them haven't been announced publicly. That's just a team that I'm still I need to actually see what they look like with all their guys before I really pick them. The team if you want to talk about a team outside of the Clippers and the Lakers that I'm really intrigued by that I think maybe has a chance to go farther than people realize is Oklahoma City. Like really? that that's a team like you don't really think like you, you know you, you don't really think of them as one of the contenders this year but Chris Paul had an all NBA caliber season this year and I'd still you know take him over most people in a playoff environment and then they just have so many other solid guys up and down the roster with uh, uh, Gallinari, Stephen Adams, Shea Gilders, Alexander. Uh, they, you know, they have so many other guys who've kind of been there before. If, you know, outside of Shea, you know, Shea's only a second-year guy, but you know, they have a lot of guys who are just very solid veterans who have kind of been in these environments before. And then also, they're getting Andre Robertson back, who has not played in two years, but he looked pretty good in these scrimmages. And so, if they get him back, and he's half the defender that he was before his knee injuries. Like, I think they could be pretty dangerous. Like, I, if, you, if you told me there was a world where Oklahoma City like randomly made the Western Conference Finals, I would not be shocked. Yeah, and this is this leads me into my next question. So, you look at the box score yesterday, and obviously they're missing Lou Williams, which is a huge piece. But basically, the two guys that scored are Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and even the Lakers. I mean, obviously being carried by Davis, it's. 
it just seems like those teams aren't super balanced like you just mentioned like in Oklahoma City but is the star power just so good on those teams that it doesn't matter or are they going to need those secondary guys to step up once it's crunch time it could be and I think you know that's that's where you know I, I I'm not betting against LeBron in a playoff environment I think by the time like I last night he wasn't very good last night but I think he also like the Lakers have the one seed locked up so I don't think he's really going to go right. all out in these eight seeding games so I wouldn't read too much into that my one question that I have with the Clippers is, I mean, obviously, I think on paper you could make the argument the Clippers are the most talented team in the NBA. And they obviously they didn't have Lou Williams last night. They also didn't have Montrez Harrell. And those are two really important pieces for them. But the thing that I'm a little bit worried about with the Clippers is they just have not had all their guys all year. Like right. Kawhi hasn't been playing on back to back, so he, you know, he he hasn't been playing in as many games. And then all, and Paul George missed like the first month of the season with his shoulder injury and then they just had other guys in and out this whole season with different injuries and then even in the bubble so far like they had Lou Will like Patrick Beverly left and then came back now uh Lou Williams obviously had his whole situation and he's not back yet Montrez Harrell's not back yet like I just when I when I think about the playoffs I usually lean towards the teams that have just that just know what they are and have just had their guys the whole year and I think if, if you're if, looking for one reason to say maybe the Clippers are not a team I would put in the category of the favorites, obviously, like from a talent standpoint, yeah, I mean the Clippers are as good as anybody; they can beat anybody. But I, that's that's one thing I would maybe look at as a factor, especially in this kind of weird environment where you want teams that just kind of are solid and know what they are and haven't had a lot of turnover and a lot of just guys missing a lot of time just to build that chemistry. That's that's just one thought. I mean, I could still obviously, I think the Clippers are an incredibly talented team. I could see them making the finals, but I could also see them maybe losing to a team that is a little bit more stable so can we get an official sean hyken prediction of the nba finals this year no All right. i'm not going to do that i just i'm, so, I'm sorry like i, I realize that's bad radio i just i just i i don't really do predictions in general but also like especially this year like what are we like there's it's so unprecedented i just like i, I it's like you just predicting anything just seems like i just i just want to see them get next three months without the bubble falling apart that's what i that's what i'm worried about right now i i totally feel you there sean you know what's crazy about this little game this little short period of time stretch too it's like it's like guys coming back from the dead that we haven't really seen or heard of and you know as contributing factors for a few years watching the game last night wasn't it crazy to watch noah got some huge minutes in the second quarter with uh los angeles you had Dion waiters jr smith playing i mean Guys who, you know, there's just guys coming back, and it just makes for kind of more of a, it's an entertaining game. Yeah. I mean, I'm personally, I covered the Bulls for several years, so, you know, joking though is a guy that I actually know a little bit, and I think he's a great guy, and I'm really happy for him that he's back in the league. Uh, so that was pretty cool to see. And then, you know, Deion Waiters looked really good last night. If he can actually look, I, I think there's a world in which Deion Waiters goes off for 30 points and wins a playoff game for the Lakers single-handedly. So, I mean, that you're right. That is a kind of a cool thing to just kind of factor in as, hey, we're going to get to see some guys that we haven't seen in a while. And you mentioned you covered the Bulls. What do you think of the Knicks hiring of Tom Thibodeau? I understand it. Uh, he's obviously Tom is a very – flawed coach but he's a very good coach uh i think the process was kind of weird because you, you 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 just knew the whole time that i mean i know they interviewed a bunch of different guys that you kind of knew the whole time it was going to be him just because it was leon rose and he's a caa guy and that they just they go way back but and the knicks also just kind of generally like to hire big names and so this was kind of the splash that they could make but 
I think Tom is a good coach. I think he gets kind of a bad rap for playing guys a lot of minutes. I think that uh, that uh, you know reputation he has is a little bit overblown. But the the, I mean, the Knicks' bigger problem, I think, they, okay, they hire a really good coach now, but that roster is still not good. Like that's the that's the thing for me. Like I like outside of like I think Mitchell Robinson and R.J. Barrett are the two guys you can point to as okay. These are young guys that maybe could become pieces going forward. But like Kevin Knox hasn't been that good. Natilla uh, Kina hasn't been that good. Like there was just I'm just like I don't look at that roster and see a lot of guys that I look at and say okay this is somebody that I want to build around going forward. So I just don't really like. They, they, Leon Rose and Worldwide West have a lot of work to do as far as uh, building the roster out and actually getting a good team. But once they have a good team, I mean, Tom's a good coach, and that's a coach that you hire when you're trying to make the playoffs and win more games. And I just think the roster needs to be a little better before they can get to that point. So you led me into my question again perfectly. It's like we scripted this. Um, with all the players being around each other in such close quarters, my buddy texted me the other day that they either officially made it legal or they can't really do anything to stop it. Of players talking to each other, you know, colluding, whatever, like the tampering, I guess, of trying to team up in future spots. You mentioned the Knicks are desperate for a star. So could you mention some players that have been rumored that could be jumping ship? Obviously, you have Donovan Mitchell, which his relationship with Gobert could be being overblown, but he might want to get out of there. You have Devin Booker stuck in... Uh, Phoenix, these are guys the Knicks might look at. Anybody else you can see, you know, as a, I don't know, a budding star that could be on the move? Yeah, I don't know if the whole, like, tamper, like, the whole tampering in the bubble thing. Like, obviously, guys are going to be talking right. to each other, but guys talk to each other anyway. Guys talk on the phone. Uh, here's my, my bigger thing is, like, there are all these guys who might be on the move, whether it's Giannis or Devin Booker or Donovan Mitchell or whoever. At this point, why would any of those guys go to the Knicks? Like, this is kind of the thing every year. Like, uh, you know, the Knicks, you know, the Knicks basically pulled out all the stops to make a run at Kevin Durant, and Durant didn't even really take them seriously. Right. They, this is just kind of the thing that happens every year. I think the, the, uh, the Knicks' problem, the Knicks' biggest problem, you know, historically, when it comes to stuff, is they try to skip steps. They go right from, oh, we're one of the worst teams in the league, but hey, we've got a bunch of cap space. We're going to try to sign Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, or we're one of the worst teams in the league, but we're going to cut out this cap space so that we can sign LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. Yep. Like, so these, the thing about these guys is, like, these guys, if these guys are leaving their teams because they want to win, why would any of them look at a team that have, you know, are one of the worst teams in the league just because it's New York and it's a big market? Like, that just historically hasn't worked. You have to get respectable yep. before you can get one of these guys. That's why uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, they wanted to go to New York. They wanted to be in a big market. But they went to the Nets because the Nets, you could look at them and say, okay, they have a good coach. They have a good culture. They have some young guys who are good. They made the playoffs. These guys have all gotten better over the last few years. This is a team where I can go there and I can see a path where we can become contenders pretty quickly. You go to the Knicks and it's just like you know, you're basically starting from scratch because they just don't have a lot to work with. I guess my last question is going to be, and obviously you know a lot more about the NBA than I do. And, you know, you're much more into with the Trailblazers. But from an outside perspective, it just doesn't seem like the Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, Tannum is going to bring a championship to Portland. So do you necessarily agree with that? And if you do, which one could you see being on the move? And maybe would is there a trade partner that you could see to bring in somebody else to team up with the other person that stays? Well, I can tell you the person that's not going to be on the move is Damian Lillard. Like, that's, that's just not and he just signed that extension with, uh, you know, over the summer. So he's going to be 
with the Blazers the rest of his career, pretty much. Like, yeah. so that's that's not going to happen. I, I honestly, I feel like I don't necessarily think it's true that those two guys can't make. I mean, last year they made the conference finals, and right. I know they caught a lot of breaks to get there, but they also, you know, the Warriors teams they faced in the conference finals uh, didn't have like most of their guys, and they almost. Uh, you know, there were a couple. I know they got swept, but some of those games were competitive. Like I could have seen a world in which they won that series, and I think that's been their mindset the whole time: is if we just stick it out with this group, maybe we'll catch some breaks, and you know, maybe we'll be able to make a run one year. I think that's kind of still their mindset. And this year, you can kind of throw out because they just had so many guys who were out the whole year: Yusuf Nurkic, Zach Collins, Rodney Hood, and so they're gonna. They think they're gonna have all those guys back next year. And that that year is going to be a little bit more indicative of what this team actually can be because they actually did make a lot of changes this year in terms of like bringing in Whiteside and bringing in other guys and getting rid of some guys who had been there for a long time. So I think next year is going to be the big year. Like this is the next year is going to be the year where they're going to have their current team. They're going to have all their guys healthy, hopefully uh, that year. And then at that point they can see for a whole season, okay, is this team actually a team that can make a run when everybody's healthy or maybe do we need to switch some things up? All right, so we'll just see in the future. But, Sean, we really appreciate you coming on. Hopefully we get all the way through the NBA Finals here. Maybe we can talk to you afterward. But um, thank you so much for taking time for us. Yeah, you guys take care. Alrighty then. Big thanks to Sean Hyken. We're going to mix it up before we end with some NBA. We're going to get some golf talk in with our hole-in-one with Ace Vitrano with another special guest, Bill's brother-in-law, Dan Keem. And we have a very fun Mount Rushmore with our fiancés, for the Mount Rushmore of wedding songs. Here we go! Numbers all in the head. Hey, it's all in. Come on. Work with me now. It's all in the head. Yeah, it's all in the It's all in the head. Get off of me! Why didn't you just go home? That's your home! Are you too good for your home? Answer me! Talk about a hole-in-one. A very special hole-in-one this week as we recap this past week's tournament and look forward to this upcoming weekend. We have our resident expert, Ace Vetrano. Ace, thank you for joining us again. Yeah, looking forward to it, guys. It's going to be a fun week. And a special introduction to Dan Keem, Bill's future brother-in-law. So, Dan, we look forward to hearing your expertise today. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. So, guys, big tournament just finished up at TPC Southwind. Justin Thomas took it home. I watch zero. Dan Hannon watched zero. So we'll start with you, Dan Keem. Uh, was it a suspenseful, was it an exciting Sunday yesterday? Yeah, it was, it was pretty great. I think at, at one point there was four or five guys right at minus 12, including Todd, the guy who Ace needed to, to pull out something better than plus five. But there was a lot of big names at the top. Ricky was there at one point, and then he fell off. JT was always, you know, around that minus 10 range and then just, kept getting better and better as the day went on and at one point it looked like Brooks was was unbeatable he hadn't bogeyed I I don't think he bogeyed until hole 16 and then he fell completely apart on 18 not even giving himself a a chance 
at the win there. So JT kind of took it away, and he won by he won by two he won by three strokes. So he really at the end of the day there wasn't much competition there for him. Ace, any additional thoughts? No, yeah, it, was, it was a great Sunday. Like you said, you know, they're all grouped up there at, at eleven under one point. It was it was nice. Let's say it really just kind of gives a nice nice kickstart into a big week here. It was good. Huge week, one of the four majors, uh, TPC Harding Park. Uh, I've heard the course is playing extremely long. Obviously, it's Monday, so I know there's not a lot of odds out there yet on specific guys. But to me, let's just talk first about Justin Thomas because I feel like he's everything at one time Jordan Spieth wanted to be. He is very consistent, especially into Saturday and Sunday. You know, he plays well under pressure, and he seems like maybe, this is my guess, he doesn't do like anything especially elite, but he's just a very solid overall player, and his experience has certainly helped him, and he's had a really good start to the year. Uh, yeah, sorry, it's tough with two people. So, yeah. Ace, why don't you respond first? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, the one thing I've always thought with JT that separates him, when, when you're talking just of that super elite tier, right, you know, it's him, it's Ron, it's Rory, uh, you know, Bryson was, you know, kind of knocked on the door with that. But really, those three, I think, are, are just the three most consistent in the world. The thing that he does better than, I think, any of those other guys is when he's, like, 125 and in, um, he is significantly better than, than really everyone else in the world. Um, you know, that's something that, you know, Rory always does those short wedges. But, but JT, like you said, he really has a complete game where that specific trait is just something I think has always separated him. Um I mean, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned something with Steve. It's obviously it's, it's funny. They're always going to be linked together because they grew up together. They played together as kids. Um, you know, Spieth kind of had a, had a lucky horseshoe there for a while. But, but JT, I think, in the long run, you know, he's just showing that, um, you know, really he is just a better all-around golfer than anything. And building off other big names, you mentioned Rory's right there at the top of the class. But Rory's last five majors, he's missed the cut and has been 5, 14, 12, and 10 shots back after 54 holes. Do you see that changing this week? Do you see him getting back on the winning trail there, uh, Dan Keem? Yeah, I, I, Rory's one of the guys I like. He's sitting at 14 to 1, which is kind Green of, chips. you know. So little... I think that, that kind of consistency and that kind of raw talent. Sorry, there's an, <laughs> there's an ad playing. Go ahead. Yeah, so thanks for interrupting, Dan. But – Rory uh, sitting at fourteen to one. It's a little chalky, but he's at this point he's he's due. He's like Ace was saying. He's one of the best golfers in the world. He, from like a complete game standpoint, there there isn't another guy that I think can can do it off the tee and and finish on the greens better than better than him just from a complete game level. So obviously, anytime you're talking golf, anytime you're talking a major tournament, you got to include Rory in there because he could just he could show up and play completely lights out. Ace, talk a little bit about the course this week and uh, maybe who that course favors. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, we can even just transition that with Rory because the one thing that is going to be very evident this week and it's going to kind of throw, I think, some people for, for a little bit of a tailspin here is I don't think I have ever been to, like, the Bay Area in, you know, overall, especially in the summer. Um, it is not, like, normal weather there. Um, they don't have a, a seasonal kind of pattern, like, you know, most of the country where it's obviously the summer months are the nicest. Um, their summers are, are terrible, to be honest. It's gonna you're gonna flip it on this week, and it's actually gonna look like more more of an Open Championship, British Open, than it is you know California in, in August, right? 
Um, honestly, I mean, the highs are going to be like around 60 all week. It's, it's going to be that kind of, you know, marine layer-ish fog, damp, you know, cool again, really just, just almost running an open championship. So I was definitely going to go to favorite guys, you know, from Europe, um, or even, you know, maybe specifically if they are American, maybe guys who are used to that California kind of marine layer type. Um, I definitely don't think it favors someone like Tiger who, you know, back issues just to start the conversation. He's also been living in Florida and, you know, he's coming from 90 plus degree heat and humidity to just, you know, total drastic change in that. So, um, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, being the, the American bias fan that I am, um, definitely gets a little slight edge to the Europeans, like a Rory or John Rahm, um, who actually kind of gets both in the sense that he's actually kind of a West Coast guy to begin with. Um, and then really just, I mean, just other parts about the course, you know, specifically, I, I'm curious to see if this is going to stick with us all week. Again, it's kind of that you might be getting fooled on Monday morning reading this stuff, but from what I'm hearing is they're actually going to try and have it play almost more U.S. Open style where, the rough's going to be, you know, ankle deep. It's going to be, I guess, how they tighten the fairways. Cause it's actually a, a public course. I don't know if you guys knew that, but so they had to tighten the fairways, I think, like over over 50%. Um, so obviously, you know, you got to be straight off the tee. Um, I mean, so anyways, everything I'm seeing is it's going to be almost like U.S. Open again. I don't, sometimes they kind of scare you in the week with that, and then actually, you know, it comes to it on Thursday. It's, it's not quite the case, but. Um, yeah, between that and the weather, it's, it's you got to be able to bring it. It's, you know, it's, it's a big boy week for sure. It's interesting. It's a public course, Ace. Do you think it's more challenging there or the Sheridan back nine? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If you're walking Sheridan, that can be tough. It can get you pretty good. But I mean, it, it, what is funny, though, because actually there are a lot more public courses that are, are in the rotation than I think what a lot of casual fans think. Like Beth Page last year with PGA was. Yeah, was there. Um, obviously, that's close to us. That's, that's a public course. Um uh, Pebble Beach is actually, I, don't, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's not like you know, anyone can play, I don't think, but, right. um, you know, Pebble Beach has, has, has some public, um, you know, sanction to it. So there's more, and, and these, and these are major type courses, right? So um, that's going to be interesting. And Dan, before Ace joined us, you mentioned that you thought Brooks Kepka was going to lead the charge to win, but he kind of fell apart at the end. He's actually the top odds for the PGA Championship this week at plus 1,000. Did you? What do you think about his game? And did you see his chirp to Bryson DeChambeau this week when he called the rules guy over for a couple fire ants and then said he was just kidding? He seems to constantly be picking on him. He was not kidding, by the I, way. Oh, DeChambeau. oh yeah. He's, oh, he's always throwing shade yeah. at Bryson. I don't. I don't think he likes him at all. Like I, I, I think that if you like, what I really want the PGA to do is to stop, you know, beating around the bush. Like let's pair these guys together yes. and let's. Let's watch them play head to head, and then maybe they could scrap after, you know, set them up in the parking lot or something. That would be an amazing fight. But Bryson, I mean, um, Brooks in general, he, uh, he, he normally the best part of his game is is getting off the tee and hitting fairways long. And when he was when he's always on his tears, he's always you know placing the balls in fairways where he wants to. At last weekend, he actually led the field in uh, strokes gained approach, which is you know, those iron shots, which is usually not his, it's still a good part of his game, but it's not his forte. I think that he actually just, he has the ability to turn it on when he really wants to. He said he had a knee injury, but I think that he, it's come major season. He's finally just like, okay, time to turn it on and win some tournaments. So even though he is the favorite sitting there right with JT, I think it's rightfully so. And and I I love him. I think that he'll be, 
I definitely think he'll be near the top of the leaderboard again and putting on a show for us. Hey, Dan, any other thoughts or any other guys that you really like this week? Uh, near the top, I like, you know, Brooks, JT, Rory. I think that's like the – those are, I think, the three best golfers in the world when, they, when they're playing at their, at their peak. But then when you get into like more of like a tier B kind of thing, you know, I, I like Morikawa all the time. I, he's one of my favorite golfers on tour. He's the second best strokes gained um, approach. Uh, the only one that's better than him is JT, and they're both gaining more than one stroke per off the of, um, from approach, which is amazing. And then I, I, you know, you guys talked about him. I think last week, and Tony Finau is another guy that. He, he always seems to be there, and then he, he can never get it done. He's, he's really got to put a full week together. But I think at 50-1, to 1, with the improvements he's making with his drives and if he can if he can place balls in the fairway, he's definitely going to be another guy that's up there at the leaderboard again. He's, he's an extremely balanced strokes gained stats player. He's .35 gained off the tee, .45 approach, .29 putting. So, you know, he's one of those guys that has a – completely balanced game and when he's on he's on so that's definitely another guy that i like in, in that in that mid-range but I, w- I would have to stick to brooks jt rory at the top and then and then my mid-tier guys are morikawa and finau and I'm, I'm rooting for a couple of guys that I, I think they they recently kind of refound their swing and they're 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 playing weekend weekend to weekend a lot better than they were in the past and that's ricky and, and jason day they're both easy to root for guys and and i you know, Jason Day had some really bad injuries and he was playing a couple of years ago with vertigo in a final round, like laying down on tee boxes. But it, it's it's really good to see those guys back competing again. I, they're, they're really likable. And, and I, I really wanted to see one of them wins up uh, at least sometime soon. Uh, it's funny you say Jason Day because, you know, I know a lot of our listeners, they come to the hole in one talk with Ace for to hear Ace, but I've been getting a lot of people asking me now every week, Buckets, who do you got this week? And I got Jason Day this week. And uh, so I'm glad you brought him into the conversation. Ace, any other guys that you like this week? Yeah, I think we might have to rename this segment the, uh, the Colin Morikawa Love Bus because it is um, – I mean, listen, I, here, here's what's going to help him this week, right? There are seven par fours on this course that are going to play 460 or longer. So even though – you know, all Marcos irons are, are, you know, elite, like we've talked about in the past on this segment. When you start getting that, that long iron, so that's where you kind of see the difference, I think, even more. So I, I definitely love Marcos this week. Um, Patrick Canley is a guy I like, you know, just outside that top tier. Um, another guy who are, who are kind of going under the radar, I think, uh, European-wise, Tommy Fleetwood, um, who obviously a lot of people love, but he kind of had to shake some rust off these past two weeks. Uh, he didn't come back until two weeks ago. Um, and then same thing, Henrik Stenson just, just played his first tournament, um, you know, post-pandemic uh, this past week. So, you know, just two guys who I think just needed to, to shake the rust off a little bit. Um, you know, two, you know, good records in major championships. Stenson obviously won the Open a couple years ago. Um, Fleetwood has, I think, multiple top fives in, in major championships. So two of the guys I like. Um, if you really want some sleepers, too, two guys I'm looking at early, uh, Joel Damon. He's a guy who I don't think many people listening to this podcast will probably college? know. What's that? Where'd he go to college? Washington. <laughs> okay. 
But uh, so anyway, West Coast guy, um, which actually, before I forget, the other thing with Marikawa, too, is he went to Cal. So, I mean, that's, that's right across the, the lake there, right? So um, another thing that helps him. But, uh, yeah, Joel Damon, I think he's just a guy who he's been striking the heck out of the ball. He had a little dip. Um, I think at the Memorial didn't have a good week there. But but outside that, I mean, just, just no one's really been as consistent as him kind of post-restart here. Um, I, you know, if you're looking for something more like a top 20, something like that, I think he's a good guy to look at. Uh, let's talk um, about Jordan Spieth. I have two more questions, and here's my first one. I did some research on Spieth this morning because he just finds himself now in the middle of the pack. You know, he's just he's just like another tour player, and I don't think you can make an argument that he's played well since really since 2017. I know he had a third-place finish in a major last year, but he was absolutely dominant six years ago in 2015. I mean, he's had 11 tour wins, and most of them were between 2015 and 16. He took the golf world by storm when he was 21, 22 years old. Now he's 27, and he seems to have... I mean, let's be honest. I think he's, like, really lost himself. And my question, I'll start with Dan, and then I'll flip it over to you, Ace. Like, was it one moment where he is, like, I know he blew up and then won Masters. Like, what has happened to Spieth? Is he not hitting greens in regulation as much? What is the difference between him now and him six years ago? Yeah, I I think that, uh, I don't know if it was one defining moment, but he he. He cannot hit his driver, and he can't find a fairway. He's he's not the same player that he used to be. I think the uh, he's losing strokes off the tee. He's like 190th in the world in strokes gained off the tee, which is terrible. You got to you got to at least gain something off the tee in order if you, if you want to. You know, not hitting fairways and scra- he's he's doing a lot of scrambling. He's always laying up because he's he's not setting himself up for a good second shot, which is a very very important part of golf in general. And then. In, in losing that shot and losing the drives, he's. I think that he's just mentally lost his confidence. Like in, in golf, being being a great golfer comes with being. You got to be confident in yourself and your game and every shot that, that you take. And and I think that he's had some probably some doubts in his own head on himself. And and he's always just. I mean, you see him on the course all the time, complaining and just being upset with himself. So I think he's just. I think he's just mentally defeated and then you know it sucks to see because he really was at the top of the leaderboard all the time and like 2015 2016 he was a great golfer and and now he's just he's kind of hanging on to that that tier b tier c kind of player right now ace anything to add yeah just the fact that sometimes it's not you know you don't have to really overlook things and just say that he kind of just got lucky for a little bit there i mean is it just i think the, the golfer we're seeing now is really just more what his baseline talent level is, I mean, it just seemed like when he was in his peak there, it seemed like every single round he was holding out from off the green, he was making these just, you know, 50, 60, 70 plus, you know, feet putts. It's just, sometimes it's just like the luck kind of wears out on stuff like that. I mean, I know we talked a couple weeks ago that the putting is just something that's so random. You can have a, a, a hot and cold day so much more frequently. You know, if that's not like a hundred percent cooperating, all of a sudden, like like Dan said, he he's always been average off the tee. He's never been this bomber, you know, just super consistent off the tee. So all of a sudden, you stop making those just bombs of putts every round. It's like, okay, well, wait a minute, this is actually just kind of who he is. You know what I'm saying? So my last question is, and you, both you guys can answer this. We'll start with Ace and finish with Dan. So it's kind of a a two-folded question. Number one is. Does Dustin Johnson have a legitimate chance at winning this tournament? And to back to back up that, if you are Dustin Johnson's caddy 
and you crossed Brompton Road and you went from Brighton 3 to Brighton 4, what would you tell Dustin Johnson to hit on Brighton number 4, that shorter par 4 there? Uh, to answer that second one first, I, I mean, he's... Like, he couldn't hit well, What is it, like there, 3, right? 320? What, what is that, like 320? Yeah, four, I think it's 330 from, from the from the tees, and yeah, he, he cannot hit a driver there. <laughs> so yeah, no, like yeah, he's going to end up where you usually are past the green there if he's a driver. Yeah, I just, I just played Brighton, was playing a little hard, you know, the, the fairways are rolling pretty good. I think he could actually get there with a solid driving iron. Takes a big hop no, yeah, for, after 280 and rolls sure. up there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of this week, too, I mean, I don't know. It's it, it's all about, like, is he just mentally locked in? I mean, he, he shot, uh, was it two weeks ago now, I guess? He shot 80 in the first round and withdrew. It's just, I mean, if he if he gets off to a good start, I'd say, yeah, he's, he's in. I mean, obviously the talent, you know, speaks for itself. But he's just such a you know, head case just in terms of like whether he cares or not. So, I mean, if he, if he's not towards the top after day one, I wouldn't, you know, he's basically coming after foul pretty quick. Ace with it being a major and all, are all four rounds being televised? I don't understand with a pandemic and people at home and whatnot, maybe I'm just being selfish. Why all golf tournaments it's four ridiculous. Rounds aren't at least televised somewhere and blackout rules in general. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous that I can't watch so many games around me. Okay, settle down, Bill. But uh, Ace, do you know if it's being televised? Uh, yeah, they, are. they actually did. Um, ESPN is stepping up this week. I think they actually are showing every single shot in terms of, um, like, first shot to last of the day. I think, obviously, you know, it's on the West Coast. I think they're starting right at, like, 11 a.m. Um, Eastern. And I think they're going all the way through, like, 10 at night. So ESPN kind of takes the... Actually, Thursday and Friday might be all ESPN. Then I know on the weekends it's going to be like ESPN, like first half of the day, and I'm just like once the leaders see off, and I think it goes to CBS. So no, actually, this because we can do a whole, we can do a whole podcast on how bad golf coverage is. But uh, this week, this week at least, it looks like it's it's pretty good. Don't even get me started though with Tigers and like you know one shot inside the cut line is kind of just you know middling pack. They're going to show every single one of his shots on Sunday instead of guys who are too bad. Cool. But that's fine. That's that's a story for another day. Yeah, and that'll really help my productivity with that much golf on top of all the other sports on. So, uh, Dan, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, how do you feel your debut went? I feel like it was okay. You know, I followed my notes, and I, I really, I, you know, I, I think I hit everything, so I'm happy with, with, with what I got out of that. Perfect. And, Ace, thank you again. We really appreciate your insight. Absolutely. We'll talk to you guys next week. All right, sounds good. Thanks, guys. All righty then. With the breaking news that the second half of Buckets and Dan is now getting hitched, we have a special Mount Rushmore, one we've been planning for a while. We're going to have our wonderful fiancés on for a collaborative Mount Rushmore of the best wedding songs. Now, just to clarify, it's not the song that the bride and groom would pick to be their quote-unquote wedding song. It's any song played at the wedding. So, Cassie, thank you. You're next to me in studio. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, guys. And Emily, my wonderful best friend's fiance. Emily, now <laughs> my best friend. How are you doing tonight? 
Oh, doing great. Oh, tough start. <laughs> I'm tough start. Well, I thought I thought you said Bill, so my bad. <laughs> that's okay. Buckets. I'm a little nervous. It's my first Mount Rushmore. Oh, that's okay. A little nervous. Get the nerves out early. Buckets, uh, how'd you golf today? I uh, struggled on the front nine. Yeah, I was thinking about walking off the course, but then I actually played really well on the back, and I'm happy with where I'm at. I got the itch back. Very good, very good. Hopefully not that itch that caused the petroleum jelly incident, but that's good. And uh. we have already done the order. It's going to go Dan, excuse me, it's going to go Emily, Dan, Bill, and Cass. So, Emily, as if you weren't nervous enough, you have the number one overall pick. I want to hear your choice and why you chose it. Oh, okay. I feel obligated to do my first pick is the, the Bill Shout song. Kick your heels up and shout. Throw your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Come on now. The Bill's on because oh, wow. no matter what wedding you're at, it just fires you up. It's probably going to be our first dance song. And, yep, that's my first pick. That's a great pick. I would say as the number two overall pick, I was pretty confident I was going to get one of two elite songs. That was my other pick. So as your first ever pick in a Mount Rushmore, I'd say there's a very strong pick. But you know what they say, you don't win Mount Rushmore's with your first two picks. You win them with your last two. So we'll see how you do down the road. With my first overall pick, I'm going to go with I want to dance with somebody. Absolute banger, really at that. all venues, but one that you're yeah. you have no problem screaming. Shirts may or may not be on if you're men and it's warm out. Maybe that's just the weddings I've been to, and <clears throat> it's just an it's an all timer. It's a great song. So, Whitney, I'm gonna throw it up to you, and that's gonna be my pick. So, Bill, you're up with the third overall pick. <clears throat> yeah. So. Those are for sure. Those were the two elite picks, and I agree. And I'm I'm actually a little surprised that you went with uh, Whitney Houston there, but I gotta tip my cap. That's a really great pick. Um, I'm gonna go "Sweet Caroline" by Neil Diamond. Now I was hoping to get this pick third or fourth round, um, but I got a snap on it in case in case uh, Cass goes for it because at the end of the night, you know, you get everyone. In a circle, and Sweet Caroline comes on. I mean, that just hits Dippy. Touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. Bill, please don't say that. Cass, you are up with back-to-back picks. Okay, well, Dan stole mine. Speak into the mic, Cass, nice and loud. Okay, Dan stole mine, so I'm a little rattled. Um, I'm going to go with Don't Stop Believing" by Journey.
good one. Um, that is a song Solid cut. that always pumps me up. Um, it will get me on the dance floor no matter where I am. Um, so I'm going to go with Don't Stop Believing. Um, for my second pick, uh, I'm going to go with Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Good pick, good pick. Um, and you know, I like that you went, you went old school and new school. So that those picks that was that was my plan. Yep, those yep. picks will appease to a multitude of ages. Very good. So, Bill, we're back to you with your second pick. Yeah, and this one, um, I'm confident in it. I like it a lot, and I think it plays well with. Uh, it, it's kind of a cross generational song. You know, you know, you, you get the the older folk at the wedding, and they say. I don't like that rap music crap, but this is kind of a hip hop song that older people actually respect and like it. And that's Yeah by Usher. That's a good one. That was on my board. That's a really good one. You totally just sold out looking at me. No, I didn't. It was right here oh, on my boy. list. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Tough. Uh, we already getting a little couple's fight over there at, near the Brighton Golf Course. So that's call good, off the wedding. Call, that's a good. Oh, yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's that's a really good pick. So I believe it's up to me now. And I'm gonna reach for mine because I think there's a lot left on the boards, but I really want to get this one. It's probably one of my actual like favorite songs in general. I'm gonna go with "Come and Get Your Love" by Redbone. song that i how, here's how i look at it. it's the perfect first song to get people out on the dance floor because it, it's a little older so you know it's not like a hip-hop song where the older folks will be afraid to go on it but it's it's a song that reaches many generations has a great beat isn't too fast isn't too slow plays to a lot of crowds and i just love the song in general can you can you give us an example of that song please? sure do, 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 do. yeah i've never heard that boom 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 Boom, 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 okay. boom. All right. Come and get your love. <laughs> all right. Now I got right. it. I had no clue what song you were talking about. All right, but now we all know. And do we like the pick? Uh, I think you're going to lose. All right. But sure, it's a good right. song. I like that, Cass. I like that. Keemer, you're up with back-to-back picks. Okay. So my next pick is going to be signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Ceremony is over, and they play that. It's just, it's just an amazing, oh, like beautiful that. song. Because you know, you sign your life away. Okay. And then yeah. my next song is gonna be, oh, um, 
This Will Be by Natalie Cole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Kim, you can yeah. finish it up if you want. Yeah. That, those no, are I got kicked out of chorus. I can't sing. Two, two very. You got kicked out of chorus. We'll have to save that story for another day. Two <laughs> very strong picks there, Emily. Um, so now I gotta, I gotta find my groove here again. You guys threw me off with your hate for my last pick. So I'm gonna go with. <laughs> Damn, I was really hoping. Yeah, it would be there, Bill. That was such a great pick. I'm gonna go with, uh, get down tonight. If you know me, I, I love disco, so I need to throw one disco song in there. I'm going to go Get Down Tonight by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Absolute banger. When I reached out to some people to try to get some ideas for what to put down here, one of my close associates said, you could put any disco song down, and it'll be great. So I'm going to stick with that and go with Get Down Tonight. So we are now up with Bill, your third pick. Yeah, I'm really happy here. This was just... Um really just at the top of my board and i'm just i think this is really good value here um and that's september by earth wind and fire good pick another disco song very good pick yeah, another disco song. And, I, and, and if the wedding was in September, it would certainly hit Diffie. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Also, just a quick side note, Bill only has three songs on his list. Well, I had five. I, I had five, and I figured four would be there. And uh, that's certainly not the case. But I, I got one other idea, so we're fine. That's that's a good pick, though, Bill. Uh, Cass, so the benefit of going forth is you get to wrap up your team before anybody. So you get your final two picks here. Okay, so my third pick, this is, I think you either love or hate this song, um, but I am obviously one that loves it. I'm going to do Bohemian Rhapsody. I hate that, but go ahead. Right. That's what I'm saying. People either love it or they hate it. I mean. Controversial. I love it. Yeah. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, my fourth pick. Now I'm going to wrap it up with, so I can have a very diverse team. I'm going to go with Jump Around by House of Pain.
great song. Great song. It's a good wedding song, too. Similar to, like, the Shout song, either the Bills or normal version. Gets everybody out on the dance floor. One of my dad's favorite songs, actually. So that's a good pick. So you wrap up your team. Very good. Bill, your last pick. Yeah, and this is, uh, this is one that was kind of in my head before before I did it, some research on my own. It's, it's, I don't think it's on the top of many boards, but it's I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good, good night. A feeling. That tonight's gonna be a That's, I'm, I, I doubt you did. Well, maybe you didn't, but if you did even a little research, that is like the number one most requested wedding song if you do a quick Google search. But that is a good one. I like that song. Again, gets gets people going. It's not too modern where the older folk feel out of place. So you definitely have a, a modern feel to your team, Bill, but you have a couple mixed in, so that's good. Uh, I'm going to wrap up with mine with another controversial pick because I'm trying to get some variants to my team as well. This one's a Hannon staple at that side of the family, any party, let alone a wedding. I'm going to go with Garth Brooks' Friends in Low Places. I toasted you, said, honey, we may be through. But you'll never hear me complain Cause I got friends in low places Where the whiskey drowns And the beer chases my blue away Get some, get some country folk out there. It's a great sing-along one. I happen to be a big Garth guy, so um, yeah. So I'm gonna wrap up my team with that. Keem, you you get to pick Mr. Relevant here. Last pick of the draft. Oh, okay. There's still so many like amazing songs yeah, I left. That's I just think one. the wedding, but I think one that I personally enjoy, and I think a lot of people like dancing to and singing to on the dance floor, is Uptown Girl. See, I thought you were going to – okay, well, I'll say that for a second. Uptown Girl, very good. Um, do you want to sing it for us a little bit? No, remember, I got kicked out of chorus. True, true. Sing. So if we if we go to our snub list, I was going to – I thought Uptown Funk would have been a good pick. But um, yeah, Uptown Girl by Billy Joel, very good. Some other ones kind of like that. I thought Footloose might get taken. I'm a big uh, Africa by Toto guy. Oh, I'm shocked you didn't I know. That. I was Dancing Queen. Dancing Queen. I'll tell you this. Dancing Queen. Is an elite song, and I feel like I should have picked that over my biased uh, "Come and Get Your Love" pick. But um, any other snubs, girls, that you could list on yours? Well, I had because you know I thought maybe I would get a slower song in that. So yep. I also had "At Last" mm -hmm. on so that. So that was on mine. Uh, "Perfect" by Ed yeah. Sheeran. Can you feel the love tonight? Yeah, I did have that. Um, I've had the time of my life. Good one. Yeah, I went away from slow songs, but "At Last" is a good one. It's one of my mom's favorite songs. Bill, any snubs off your list of five? Yeah, I can't think about what's that song that used to just hit different at Dark Horse on the first floor that Wagon that used Wheel. To get played all the, no, no, it was like the other one. It was just 
can't think of the name of the song, but uh, what kind of song? It was like an old like rock. No, I'm listing all the Dark Horse First Floor songs though. Yeah, I can't think of the name. It certainly was fantastic. Um, can't think of the name of it though. Maybe you can do some research and let us know tomorrow during the intro. Yep. All right, good one. Um, Emily, any last words? How do you feel? Actually, let's wrap up our team. So, Emily, recap your team for us and tell us how you felt overall about your first Mount Rushmore. I am no longer nervous, but I think I have a pretty good team. I think I have some good wedding songs. The Bill Shout song is that's a number one no matter what, no matter wedding you're at. Um, I've signed Seal Delivered. I'm yours is great. This will be. And then Uptown Girl. I don't know. I feel pretty good. I think mine's definitely better than Bill's <laughs> and his five song list and then his Google research mm-hmm. during the Mount Rushmore. So I think I did good. Bill, what would um, Shaq have to say about your team overall? I got new. I got old. I got, I got the best of both worlds. People like to dance and they like to dance to my music. All right, very good. So that's a good thank you, Shaq. And Cass, another appearance on Buckets and Dan, mm-hmm. getting kind of sick of you. And um, just an end to uh, the re, uh, real a cap off to an amazing weekend for us. So, how do you feel about your team? Um, I feel pretty good. I think I have a pretty diverse team overall. Um, I think I hit a little bit of everything that someone will like. So I'm feeling I'm feeling good. Yeah, I would say the same about mine. I I got probably four of my top eight that I wanted, but that's what's great about it. It's a very well, – it's two good things about it. It's a very deep draft class, and it's a very personalized one. One song, like Cass picking Bohemian Rhapsody. She loves that song. I'm not a fan, so it'll be interesting to see what the voters think. Please make sure to log on to Twitter. Go to at Mount Rushmore 716 on Tuesday, and Nick will post the graphic and the Twitter poll for you to – Write down your favorite song list. So, Emily and Bill, thank you so much. And especially, Emily, I'm glad you were able to knock this off your bucket list, no pun intended, and join us from Mount Rushmore tonight. It's been a blast, guys. Thanks for having me. The Shaq voice hits a little diffy on a Sunday night, doesn't it, Bill? both of you. Thanks for having me. You know, it's good to be on with you guys, and uh, even if I'm doing it from a remote location. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Cass, thanks. Appreciate it. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) All right. All right, see you guys. Alrighty then. Our final segment is our Ari McNamara Blast from the Past, and this week we are with former NBA player, former Syracuse basketball star, Buffalo native, current Brighton Stratton basketball coach, Damone Brown. Here we go! Our Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past is brought to you by R.E. McNamara. Have you been working from home and noticing how many rooms need an upgrade? Call R.E. McNamara at 741-4819. From basements to bedrooms, kitchens to attics, and especially when you want to convert a room into your home office, R.E. McNamara has you covered. 741-4819. We are 
excited to welcome on as our R.E. McNamara Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past, a Buffalo native who went on to average over 16 points a game in his final three years at Syracuse under Jim Beheim before spending four years in the NBA. He is now the current head coach at Bryant and Stratton College. Damone Brown, Damone, thank you for taking time to talk with us this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, Damone, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your experiences playing basketball at Seneca Vocational. Uh, I'm I'm a native of Buffalo, New York. Uh, you know, grew up right here on the east side of Buffalo, and uh, took a liking to basketball at, at an early age, and you know, started my basketball career at Seneca Vocational High School. And I have to imagine it was pretty competitive back then. So, who were some of the best schools around in the city at the time, and who are some players you remember going head to head against? Oh uh, man, uh, back then it was it was a, a who's who. Uh, of, of, of competition and guys uh, some of the top schools were uh buffalo traditional was always tough with uh jason rowe and damian foster and you know darcel williams uh, Turner carroll was tough with malik campbell and kevin ross um a, a younger uh, leonard soaps was on that team um riverside was was always uh, i mean mckinley bennett uh Back then, all the public schools were, were very competitive and very good. Uh, it was always some great uh, Catholic school teams as well, uh, with you know Bishop Tymon and St. Joe's and St. Francis. But you know, it was it was it was great competition back back then. Yeah, and it seems like the landscape of high school basketball around here has certainly changed. Um, some of the best players seem to kind of opt for the private school route route now. So um, back yeah. then, your you know your junior and senior year. Uh, maybe just talk to us a little bit about what the recruiting process was like and maybe what other schools were after you and why you chose uh, to go down the 90 and p- play at Syracuse. Uh, well, even with my, you know, having a pretty successful junior year, I, I was kind of a, you know, a late, a late, uh, late bloomer, a late recruiter, as they say. Um, it really didn't start happening for me until I went on the road and started playing AAU basketball. And, uh, you know, I was able to go to a few, a few different tournaments uh, in Philadelphia, Jersey, uh, just all over the place, and that's where I really made a name for myself on that on that circuit. And uh, you know, Syracuse was one of the schools to you know recruit me, but I mean that wasn't my first choice. My first choice, I wanted to go, uh, you know, be a Fab Five and go and go to uh, Michigan or take it out west of UCLA, but. You know, Syracuse had so many of the things that I wanted. Had I mean that they had that I wanted. Uh, was always close to home and had a chance for my family to come see me play all the time. And you know, to have a chance to play on ESPN almost every other day, and you know, Big Monday and things like that. That was really, uh, really a draw for me. So your freshman year, you walk into a really good team. The team finishes twenty-six and nine with a Sweet Sixteen berth. You don't play much. Um, Actually, you mentioned him. I was going to ask you about him. Uh, Malik Campbell was on that team. No, I know he's a two-sport guy. I kind of remember him from coaching at Buff State. Not sure if he's still there. Um, but he also played football. My, I guess my two questions are, what was that year like in terms of development? It was probably kind of like a wake-up call to get ready. And then, and were you close with Malik, two Buffalo guys? Uh, I definitely was close. close. I mean, well, not was. I am close. He's one of my best friends still to this day. Uh, but going going to Syracuse that freshman year, it was definitely a learning experience. Uh, you know, I had to get stronger. Uh, the speed of the game is, is a lot faster. The guys are a lot bigger. 
uh, a lot more skill. But you know that that first that first month was very eye opening, and uh, you know just had to get caught up to speed and you know learn the game. And we like you said, we had a, we had a pretty good we had a, a pretty good team that year. So you know you had to wait your turn and you know be ready for when your name is called. In your sophomore year, a few games in, you take over the starting role, and you really never look back. And I could just imagine. I was a little. I'm a little bit too young to have watched those games, but you know, doing my research, you Ryan Blackwell, who transferred in, who was a Rochester kid, and Etan Thomas, who I know, you know, I know of well, played a long time in the NBA. Um, I'm sure played the bottom of that two-three zone. You know, another mm-hmm. 20 win year, and you really start to blossom and earn a lot of playing time. Talk about what that year was. You know, going from you know playing in Buffalo to not really playing your freshman year to all of a sudden you're playing teams. In this really tough era in Big East basketball, you know Villanova, UConn, you name it, uh, all those teams. Uh, it was a great experience. I mean, it, it kind of my, my my college career kind of is similar to my high school career. My freshman year of high school, I really didn't play that much. Um, you know, coming into my sophomore year, I didn't start like the first couple games of the season, and then you know, it just was a switch. Uh, once I got to that starting lineup, never looked back, and you know the career went up. Same thing with college. Uh, you know, I think we had just came back from, I want to say Hawaii, and uh, you know I, w- I was kind of frustrated with the playing time. You know, I had to talk with the coaches to see what I can do to you know be more of an impact player on the team. We had that conversation, and and from that from that moment on, I did exactly what they asked for, and uh, you know. Like you said, I got into that starting lineup and never looked back. In your junior year, the 99-2000 year, you guys go 26-6, and start the year 19-0. and uh, Like I said, you, Thomas, Blackwell, and Jason Hart all average double figures, so a really balanced team. I have to ask you, was it a, you get to the Sweet 16, but you get bumped um, after that round, at that round. Was it a disappointing finish, you know, like walking off the court? Did the team – did you think – throughout the year that this was a national championship type of contending team? Uh, absolutely. I mean, on that team that we had, uh, we had three seniors, uh, two guys that went to the NBA, uh, a great point guard in Jason Hart, uh, a great player, great center, anytime time is both. Uh, I mean, he could have been defensive player of the year in the nation. Jason was, was a top steals guy. And, uh, you know, anytime you don't win a championship or, or, or win that last game of the season, it's, it's always tough and, and disappointing. But uh, I think we, we had a we had a, a, a great year. Uh, that team is great. I mean, all of us are, you know, still friends to this day and still are in communication and contact with each with each other. But, um, I mean, we, all, we, we definitely had our, our sights set on winning the championship that year. In your senior year, uh, you know, you lose Blackwell and Thomas to graduation. You're kind of the guy in the front court. It's really kind of your, you know, you're you're the guy who is kind of accountable or kind of held responsible to really be the star rebounder on the team. The team still wins 25 games, but you guys get beat up pretty good by Kansas in the round of 32. Um, I got to ask you uh, just maybe your feelings walking off the court for the last time. And, and what what was it like to play for Jim Beheim? Ooh, playing for Coach Bayheim. Uh, he's he's a great coach. I mean, he he really knows his X's and O's. He knows how to get the best out of each player. Uh, he, he's a player coach. Once you get into that rotation, 
he's going to be your best friend. I mean, if you're out that seven to eight man rotation, you're going to think he's the worst coach in America. But I, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed my four years at Syracuse. I had a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, I mean, I had a chance to play for a Hall of Fame coach. Um, but that that last game, I mean, it's tough. Like I said, you always compete and play, you know, to, to win your last college game. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we came up short. But uh, the memories that I had, you know, from Syracuse, the friendships that I have from Syracuse, is something that's going to be, uh, you know, with me forever. Yeah, and building on that, tell us a little bit about what it was like just in general being a basketball player at Syracuse. I have to imagine there's a, a little bit of a celebrity status among your peers. Plus the academics, because I know they take that pretty seriously there. Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah, I mean, I got a, I got a chance to get my degree in uh, IST, which is uh, Information Science and Technology. Um, you know, you, you plan at the Carrier Dome. It's the, you get to play in front of 30,000 fans on any given night. Um I mean, Syracuse is, is a sports town. So, you know, the football team, the basketball team, they're, they're always going to show a lot of love to you. You're going to walk down the street, walk down Marshall Street, you're going to see a jersey hanging up on, in a few of the stores. But uh, it, it was it's a great city. Like I said, it was, a, it was the best time of my life, the best four years of my life. And, uh, you know, a great, great learning experience. We'll have great memories with it that I'm going to hold on to forever. You know, you just brought up um, something I was going to ask later in the interview, but I feel like you'll have an awesome perspective on this, way better than something we could have. You said, you know, you could walk down Marshall Street and see your jersey hanging up. So, you know, the biggest debate that's circled around college athletics for the past five years at the Division One level is, should college athletes be paid? You went through it, you know, not making any money, um, and kind of, you know, your likeness was for sale, you can say, at Syracuse, and you made the institution a lot of money. Where do you stand on where uh, Division One athletes, if they should be provided a stipend or if it should continue with the same model? No, I think they should be provided some type of stipend. I mean, it don't even have to be a whole hundreds of thousands of thousands of dollars like they say. It could just be, you know, something. I mean, a little bit in college goes a long way. And uh, it, it can only help help the student and help, them, uh, help the student athlete, you know, get by. I mean, like some of the stories I've been hearing from, from other athletes, you know, no money to get, you know, food, no money for this or whatever reason. But it should be some type of stipend. Hey, they don't have to be, like I said, they don't have to be hundreds and, I mean, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it should be some type of some type of compensation. When you were playing college basketball, was it a struggle, like, financially through your four years to do things outside of, you know, school-related activities? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes because, I mean – one, you had a lot of work during the year. Uh, my parents weren't the rich, richest, so if, if I needed something, I may have to wait a little while or, you know, just wait until they can or call a different family member. But all in all, it, it, it was kind of good. I, I, if, I, if I needed something, I didn't have to wait super long, but, you know, I was able to get by. And moving forward to, you know, probably one of the happiest days of your life, uh, NBA draft day. What were your expectations going in? Where were you on draft night? And kind of like just the overall memories of that night being drafted by Philadelphia. Uh, Draft day, I was was in New York City uh, for draft day. I was with my, you know, a bunch of families and and friends in Times Square. We had rented a space out in the uh, ESPN restaurant. Uh, so I was, I was with family and friends, um, 
from from all my work, I was because I went to they used to have a camp out in, in Phoenix. I went to there, then I went to the camp in Chicago, and from from all the talks from I was hearing, I had a pretty good chance of being drafted. So, I mean, I, I was nervous, I was excited. You know, as, as the draft goes on, you, your your nerves get a little bit more. And I mean, that's how it was. And, and so they called my name. And when they called my name, I was I was very excited and, you know, elated. And, you know, it was a sense of relief. Uh, had the biggest smile on my face that day. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was just a great experience. That Philly team had some serious names on it. Tell us what it was like playing with guys like Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo, Eric Snow. And please tell us what it's like playing for one of the best all-time coaches in Larry Brown, what your what your relationship was like with him. Uh, yeah, like you said, that team was very talented. You know, had a bunch of great guys on there. Uh, I mean, I, I learned a lot from Eric Snow. Uh, you know, he was he was a guy that showed me the ropes. Uh, I learned a lot from Dikembe Mutombo. I got a chance to practice with Allen Iverson every day, so that that took my my my, my basketball confidence to another level. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, in that team, we had a one of the great Syracuse players, Derek Coleman. He was he was my vet. Yep. So, so uh, you know, he he, he kind of showed me the ropes of you know how to be a professional and things like that. How to handle yourself, always be ready. How to you know how to work out and stay in shape and always be ready when your name is called. Uh, Larry Brown, he he's a Hall of Famer. Like I said, during my basketball career, I had a chance to play for a bunch of Hall of Fame coaches: uh, Jim Beheim, Larry Brown, Lenny Wilkins. Uh, so I I was able to learn so much. You know, what I'm saying I, I learned so many different things about the game: development, uh, preparation. You know, Larry Brown was a, was a, was very was a stickler on kind of like perfection. You know, what I'm saying. If you did it, if you did it for perfect in practice and things like that, it'd be a whole lot easier for in the game. So, I mean, those are just a few things I learned from him during my time there. I have a couple questions about this team. Was Allen Iverson? I mean, Iverson averaged over thirty-one a game that year. Was he the most talented mm-hmm. player you've ever, I guess, guarded in practice or seen up close? And how awesome was it seeing the Matumbo finger wag in person? <laughs> uh, Allen Iverson was, was something special. I mean, a be Five foot ten, a hundred something pounds, real thin, and and just to be able to see the the different things that he did on the floor was 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 amazing. Like it'd be sometimes I'd be watching, and you know I look up at the scoreboard and he had twenty eight points already, and that's it happened it happened in the blink of an eye. Um, very skilled, very crafty, very explosive. Uh, you know, just just a great and and he's a great teammate. You know what I'm saying? He, that's something that you probably don't hear too often, but he was a great teammate, you know, on and off the court. Um, Matumbo. Matumbo is, is, is a – I mean, once you get to the NBA, man, you, you got to be pretty – you got to be special to be there. You got And you got to be super special to have, you know, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame career, Hall of Fame numbers. And Matumbo was another one. He, he was a, a great friend of mine, a uh, great guy, you know, another guy who really showed me the ropes of the NBA and how to carry yourself. So, uh, yeah, Matumbo was a great guy. And then we the- had some battles in practice too. You had some what? Some battles in practice. Uh, yeah, I'd imagine. You know. Um. So then you go to Toronto, and again, you play with another future Hall of Famer, Vince Carter. So you just mentioned how impressive mm-hmm. it is just to get to the NBA, and obviously your career. Mm-hmm. 
lasted four years, certainly something to hang your hat on. But just talk about how impressive it is that Vince Carter was able to play in four different decades, obviously coming up in the late 90s, playing through the 2000s, the 2010s, and even this past year in 2020, playing probably his last year, and what it means like to have that long of a career. I mean, uh, to have a career that long is definitely a blessing. Uh, You have to be able to make it through without no serious injuries. keeping tip-top shape uh and that that's a long time i mean to, to play 20 years in the nba is, is, a, is a very long time eight, over 80 games a year playoffs and things like that and I, it's just a blessing to see him see him do that damon i'm loving this interview i gotta ask you about a specific date in january in 2003 do you remember january 14th 03 you remember that night that that day is is, is ringing some bells Six for 10, 13 points. I mean, like coming off the bench, how awesome was that for you? Uh, I mean, let me just make sure. Are you talking about a, a day down in, in Washington, D.C.? I am. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it, it, that day is, uh, will stick out in my mind forever. Um, you know, to, to play against, you know, the, the, the GOAT, you know, get a victory, you know, have one of your best games and have the coaches really believe in you to, you know, to go out there and affect the game against them is, is was really a blessing and, and an honor and things like that. Um, I mean, I just realized, I just found out not too long ago that I, I was in, I guess, a, a Michael Jordan book about that night. So, I mean, it, 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 it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. Like I said, it was an honor, uh, you know, to, to have one of your better games against Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah, I and, forgot uh, about that. And then be able to, you know, kind of kind of slow him down and corral him a little bit and, you know, get that victory. That's amazing. It's pretty big. I'd say my career high in middle schools, I had about the same stat line, but it was in eighth grade, <laughs> six for 10 for 13 <laughs> points. So you actually, go, you actually go to Washington the next year, and it's mm-hmm. got to be awesome for you because you re- reunite with the Tom Thomas who, you know, you played with mm-hmm. for three years and accused. How cool was that? It was great. It was great. I mean, actually, you know, be able to teammate. I mean, team up and have your teammates that you had in college. Uh, you know, somebody who who knows your game and you know their game. And I mean, you know, you know the, the different things that you like. He like off the floor. I mean, in in college, during the summertime, the time was my roommate. So that that was. I mean, it just it just brought back a lot of memories. And I'm like, I'm, I was just thrilled to hear that you're still in Buffalo when I continue to do my research. I've actually, you know, you've had so much success in only two years um, here at Bryant and Stratton. I was actually driving over to my buddy Dan's here and I saw, you know, an ad for Bryant and Stratton hoops right on the back of one of the Metro buses. So it was kind of interesting that I saw that. But uh, how cool has it been staying here, you know, helping out, you know, local guys? You've had a lot of success. Uh, you're the first year in Brighton Stratton history. Just two years ago, you lead the team to the small college national final four, and you followed that up with a 19 and 11 record this past year. How fun has it been for you coaching here locally? Uh, it's great. Uh, just like you said, I've had the chance to get a local guy a chance to play basketball, or another chance to play basketball with you know we do have the you know other colleges in the area, but you know sometimes they can't make it to the larger Division one schools or something happened to to prevent them to get in there or they don't they don't want to take a juco route 
and, you know, to have another chance to play basketball at a four-year school and, you know, receive a scholarship and, I say, compete at a high level is a reward for, reward for me. Uh, you know, I, I love to give back. I love a game of basketball. And I always want to get a guy, you know, a, ch- a chance to be better and to learn, you know, learn learn some different things that I learned during my role uh, of playing basketball. Did I? Your son is on the team, correct? Or is that incorrect? Yep. Well, my oldest son, my oldest son is playing, and then this upcoming year, my youngest son will be joining us. Is that challenging coaching your own children along with other athletes? Uh, I'm gonna say no. Um, I mean, my, my my boys, they they know what I expect, and you know, and I think they they have put in the work. You know, over the time, to, you know, to be to be good basketball players, and not just to go out there and, and execute it. There's it no, uh, it's no slacking. There's no, oh, my dad, the coach, so I can get away with it. Now they they work just as hard, and you know, I, I demand a little bit more out of them than I would anybody else. So, Dewan, I have a couple. Bill and I both coach high school basketball, so I have a couple just general coaching philosophy questions. Do you think mm-hmm. AAU is good for basketball? I know it helped your career. I must say it depends on the AAU program that you know that that the kid is a, is, is a part of. You know, some some AAU programs are just really a money grab. You know, for that program right. for that team, they don't really put put the players in the you know right tournaments or develop develop them the right way. Um, but then you have some programs who. You know, they have practices during the week. They play the game the right way. It's not just about, uh, you know, one kid going out there shooting all the shots and things like that. It's, it's really used to develop, you know what I'm saying, your basketball game and get you exposure to play basketball at a, you know, at the highest level. Right. And then what is your philosophy on the specialization specialization of sports versus an athlete playing multiple sports? Do you feel if a – if a player really wants to play college basketball, should they just stick to basketball and take a thousand shots a day, or do you prefer when athletes are playing multiple sports and getting different, I guess, attributes out of the different sports? And did you play multiple sports in high school? I think, well, in high school, I, I didn't. I, I was going to play football my senior year, but by that time, my mother had, you know, shut shut that dream down for me. <laughs> but uh, I think, I think when you're young. You, you should play play as much play as many sports as you can play all the time. Just don't you know you you don't have to just focus on one thing uh, at that particular moment. You don't you you, you definitely don't want to be in the house playing video games all day. Correct. But get 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 out get out there and play. Get out there and, and see what you like. You may like soccer. You may like tennis. You may like baseball. I mean, you may be good at basketball, but I mean, you may be good at football, but basketball may be your thing. Uh, just get out there and play as much as you can and. You, you don't have to just focus on one thing. You can play all the sports and, and practice as much as you want for, you know, when, when you need to. I agree with that as well. And my last question, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that as a player that came out of the city of Buffalo, was successful at Syracuse, successful in the NBA, the your mentality might be a little more driven than today's athletes. So what do you find is the biggest challenge in coaching today's athlete as opposed to the mentality that, Maybe players you, uh, when you were growing up had. Whew. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a very that's a very good question. Uh, it, it is things are definitely different. Um, 
I, I know, you know, back in my day, we I, I ain't gonna say we weren't as skilled, but we we definitely worked hard. You know what I'm saying? We we were always, you know, in the gym playing basketball, walking down the street with a basketball, things like that. I think today, today's athletes are are just more naturally gifted, and it's kind of hard to find that that true love, that true dedication to, be, to become a great player. Some some players have it. I don't think enough players have. I think back then a, a lot of the guys wanted to be good. Uh, so they, they worked to be good. They worked to be great. I think I think a, a lot of today's athletes just settle for settle for being good instead of taking the full advantage of being the great player that, that, that they can be. Yeah, and I don't know if this is a question or maybe if you just want to piggyback, it, piggyback off of it. I just feel like today's athlete, a lot of it is, um, you know, if you are working – you know, it's got to be recorded. You got to be like promoting yourself yeah. all the time. Yeah. No one wants yeah. to just put in the work when nobody's watching. Not, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's not yeah. as often you'll find people who just want to put in the work uh, when nobody's looking. And and again, there, you know, there's so many more distractions. I'd say now than yeah. there was 25 years ago. You know, kids are just and and adults are just hooked on their screens and constantly, whether it's yeah. video games, TV, or just on their phone, that is consuming yeah. them. Yeah, that that sounds about right. It's all about uh, how they look doing something. Instead of just worrying about you know making a layup and getting two points, it got to be the flashy yeah. layup to get two points. Uh, it, it's not going to the gym and, and working out for two hours. It, it's going there, having somebody record you as if you was in there for two hours when you was in there for you know ten minutes. Um, and then it, it's all about the the, the quick instant gratification yeah i played good i had 13 points i had uh you know two sweet layups and this and that okay you had 13 points but you probably could have had 30 if you would just would have played hard and competed and played hard the whole game so i mean it, it's different like you said it's, it's a bunch of distractions out here and and it's all about the look now it's not about you know really the, the work and, and the grind and you know getting getting better on yourself on your, on your own time and things like that demo my last question for you is how do you uh, how do you work the refs in games? What's your relationship with like referees? Because if you ever want a good chuckle or some good entertainment value, I'd really suggest for you to come out to Kenmore East, watch one of their JV basketball games, and watch my co-host here berate the referees, make his you know his face gets red as a tomato, scream at the referee for for 32 minutes. You know, it usually doesn't work out. He for he, me. he makes it miserable <laughs> to come to come coach to come ref at at uh, Ken Maurice. What are you like with the referees? Uh, I'm I'm a little bit of both. I, I don't really scream super much at them, but I do I do get my point across. If it's a if it's a few bad calls that they miss, I'm a, I'm gonna let them know. I, I don't try and uh you know berate them and and, and make a scene for them because it, that never works out well for you but I, I do get my i do get my point across you know what i'm saying I, I, I will i will get my point across well damone my point is if they made the right call i wouldn't be yelling at them but anyway <laughs> I, my last question for you is what do you think is the skill that is i guess least worked on or focused on on today's basketball players for me at least in our program it's passing i think we might be the worst passing program in America, but I think that has a lot to do with when you go watch a pickup game outside or, you know, these AU games, it's the instant gratification of scoring. And I, I think that the mm -hmm. passing is a lost art. So it, when for the kids and maybe in your program or, um, you know, where, when you when you go around recruiting, watching these tournaments, what do you think is the, the least focused on skill? 
Uh, I, I can agree with that passion. I mean, people take it for granted. Uh, they think it's, you know, it's easy. But when you out there getting pressured and, you know, is, is the point guard picking you up 94 feet or you're getting double teamed or something like that, you got to be able to make a, a, a accurate pass. I mean, so that that's something we 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 definitely work on that a lot. We we start our practices with, with with passing drills and things like that. We also incorporate it into you know different conditioning drills to you know to try and simulate game situations like that and game speed and and doing it while you're tired. Yeah. But I'll agree. Passing is something that that's taken for granted. All right. Well, Damone, we, I feel like we could talk to you all day. We really appreciate you coming yeah. on. Um, it was awesome recapping your career, and we really appreciate your insight in today's coaching. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Alrighty then. Wow, Dan. Fourteen episodes in. Can we get to twenty? That's the question. I think with all the sports going on, it's going to come a little easier. So we have another mixed bag next week. I'm excited. Should be a good one. Yeah, we're going to talk a little Bills, hopefully. Starting to get, you know, training camps, starting to ramp up. Uh, you know, there's been some news over the past few days. So that should be fun to finally talk about the Bills. Hopefully the season is really going to happen. And, Dan, it's really a beautiful time. Like, we've made it through March, made it through this whole quarantine thing. I know we're still, you know, staying safe, but it's a beautiful thing on this Monday afternoon to turn over my left shoulder and watch an NHL playoff game. Agreed. This all-day sporting action has been great. So we're looking forward to talking about it some more next week. Hope everybody enjoys their week. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and follow us on all podcast forms. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter as well. We try to throw out as much content as we can. Shirts are coming. Shirts are coming. The email's been put in. Shirts actually are coming when I update now. So look forward to that, and that'll do it. Love you, Mom. I know.